Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems and what you can do to solve them. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's episode is actually an interview with me on the Clearer Thinking Podcast. In it, I chat with Spencer Greenberg, who has been an audience favorite in episodes 11 and 39 of this show, and now has created a podcast of his own. As a result of being on a different program, uh, we aren't super focused on the world's most pressing problems and how to solve them in this conversation. And what's in here is also just my personal opinion, uh, rather than anything coming from the 80,000 Hours team. I'm sure plenty of my colleagues will disagree with plenty of what I had to say. But it was a fun conversation about things that we've been mulling over lately, uh, and Kieran and I thought that most of you would enjoy listening to it. Among other things, we cover whether trying to become a better person is a good strategy for self-improvement, why I think students and freelancers uh, could achieve much more if they found themselves uh, line managers, why interviews on this show, the 80,000 Hours podcast, are so damn long, whether it's complicated to figure out uh, what humans being value, or perhaps actually simpler than it seems, why I think research ethics and institutional review boards are causing immense harm to the world, and finally, uh, where prediction markets might be failing today and how we could tell if they are. If you like this conversation, uh, go ahead and subscribe to Spencer's show by searching for Clearer Thinking in your podcasting app. It brands itself as a podcast about ideas that truly matter, uh, with a particular focus on forming true beliefs and making good decisions. From the perspective of sheer enjoyment, uh, my favorite episode of the Clearer Thinking podcast so far is episode number two, Aesthetics and Polyamory with Sam Rosen. Among other things, Sam talks about why he thinks there needs to be an effective aesthetics movement uh, that tries to maximize the amount of beauty that people see per dollar spent. I couldn't agree more, Sam. Uh, My friend and colleague, Arden Kaler, who many of you will be very familiar with, uh, has also been on the Clearer Thinking podcast for episode number eight, covering life experiments and philosophical thinking. I hope you get a chance to check out those episodes. And without any further ado, here's Spencer Greenberg's interview with me. Rob, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me on, Spencer. I always enjoy our conversations, both when there's a microphone and when there's not. So I expect it'll be pretty, pretty, pretty fun chatting today. Yeah, I finally get to turn the tables on you. For those who don't know, uh, Rob has had me on twice to his 80,000 Hours podcast, which I highly recommend you check out. Fantastic podcast. And now I, now I get to put him in the hot seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two of, uh, two of your episodes have been audience favorites. So yeah, people should go, go check them out. Like, recently, I've been posting on social media about something that something you taught me about how to do Bayesian updating a, a, lot, a lot easier than uh, most people do. I think that's one of the most useful things that I've ever learned. And I uh, got it from you listening or uh, interviewing you. So yeah, well done. Oh, yeah, that was fun. Rob made me uh, do Bayesian updating in real time on his podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the first topic I want to talk to you about today is self-improvement. And and I know you have like a lot of interesting ideas, and and maybe we have some fun disagreements we could dig into. So yeah, so so love for you to just jump in and and tell us about some of the things you think about self-improvement that maybe aren't that widely believed. Right, yeah. So recently, I guess we were doing uh, a feedback round at at work, and I was uh, thinking a bit about what, what do I think are the, are the best ways that, that people can improve themselves, or at least maybe the, the, the best value ways that people can, can try to improve themselves? And I think often when people have, uh, they notice that there's problems in their life, very often they'll jump to trying to shift their personality. So for example, if someone doesn't have enough social contact, they'll try to become more extroverted. Maybe a really common one would be uh, if people like are struggling to get work done, uh, they'll try to become more conscientious. And I think, I mean, I can't, I can't prove any of the things that I'm about to say here, but my, my kind of experience with myself and watching other people is that I think focusing on that is often a mistake and that instead people should try to route around those, uh, those issues that they have or like uh, perhaps the personality weaknesses, the things that they perhaps don't most like about themselves and instead try to solve their, their problems another way. 
So I, I made this kind of hierarchy of uh, like a list that I would go down if I'm having problems and I want to improve myself and, and solve those issues. And at the, at the top of the hierarchy, I thought the, the best approach to try to solve problems in your life might be to just try to buy something that would, that would solve the problem. So if you have you know, back issues, perhaps, and say you're struggling to be conscientious enough to do the physio exercises that the, that the physio has, has given you to try to deal with your back issues, or perhaps to, to exercise enough to, so that you're strong enough that you don't get back pain sitting at a desk all the time. Maybe you should just buy a really expensive desk chair that, that could, or try a lot of de- desk chairs to, to try to fix the problem. I have a, I have a personal journey with that. I, I literally tried like seven different desk chairs because it was hurting my lower back. And I finally right. found this like crazy desk chair that actually worked. And then I eventually realized, oh, standing desk is even better for my back. And I switched to that. And that now my background is like totally gone. So uh, personal anecdote on that one. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, back issues or musculoskeletal issues are so important that kind of anything that can, that can help with those and prevent you from getting RSI or being unable to type comfortably or work comfortably. It's a kind of a bargain at any price. But yeah, I think people, there's not as much romance about just like buying a product that helps to solve your problem uh, as there is about, say, like trying to become a better person. But I think that well, it's just so much easier to buy something and then just have it there so that you can use it uh, than just to try to shift who you are. But that's the thing that you should probably reach for first. It's even better than, than other things you might try to do, like you know, build a system or trying to learn a new skill because it doesn't, doesn't really require sustained attention you can just like potentially buy a thing and now you have it and you'll use it and the, and the problem is gone. And then you have all of that attention and all of that willpower that you might have uh, used to try to solve that problem to, to work on other things instead. Great. So that's the first part of the hierarchy. And then what's next on it? Right. Yeah. So the next one was just to try to learn a specific skill. So perhaps if you need to learn how to budget, you could just like learn how to use uh, spreadsheets, for, for example. I think the, the, the reason I quite like that one is just People, have, people could be more or less optimistic about self-improvement, but almost everyone agrees that you can just like learn new concrete skills. You can learn how to use a piece of software or learn how to, how to cook or something like that. It might take more effort than just buying something and putting it into your life, but it doesn't require like fundamentally changing who you are. And then the, the, the next best was to think about, is there some systemic reason that I'm having this problem in my life? And even if I'm like still going to be, say, someone who's forgetful by nature, that's going to be very hard to change. Maybe I can build a systemic workaround to, to, to that issue. That, that means that it's not such a, such a big problem. So for example, yeah, if you're constantly forgetting things that you need to build systems into your life where you say, always remember to stick stuff in your calendar uh, and set it to send a reminder to you at the most likely moment that you're going to need to be uh, reminded about something. I can, relate to, I can relate to that one too. I, I tend to be quite forgetful about things. So for example, if I'm out and about and I have a bag, I just position it in a place where if I try to leave without it, I'll like step on it. And that's my like, <laughs> oh, I'll never forget my bag again kind of uh, strategy. Yeah, exactly. I, I've kind of uh, learned over time. I have this like red red light that goes off in my head when I'm like thinking I'm going to need to remember to do something. Like for example, just then I was remembering that we've got to get some groceries over Christmas. Unfortunately, the the, the cutoff for changing the the grocery delivery order is uh, just like very close uh, after this interview. I have to remember uh, to do that like immediately after we finish talking, more or less. So I'm going to miss the deadline. So I stuck it in my calendar, and I'll get a reminder as soon as this interview finishes to to go and do that. Now. You could try to become someone who just like naturally remembers things much better and doesn't require a system like that. But by and large, I think it's just easier to build a system that compensates for your weaknesses than it is to try to change who you are. And so then kind of the, the fourth thing, the thing on the bottom is like try to become uh, a different person or try to gradually shift like how conscientious you are, how extroverted you are, how open you are to experience. And I think people can do that. There is good evidence that people can shift their uh, personalities over time. It does just require sustained effort. And it is usually a gradual process. People can't rapidly switch. It's something where like each year you become a little bit more like, like what you were aiming at. And 
people tend not to stick with it potentially for long enough to get the, the changes that they'd like. And also it's eating up attention and effort and potentially like emotional energy that you could otherwise potentially be, be putting into other more productive pursuits. So I think I've slightly maybe reversed the hierarchy of people, or the, or the romance that people might have about self-improvement would probably put like becoming a better person fundamentally, changing your personality at the top and maybe buying something feels like a cheap or like a kind of slightly rubbish way to solve a problem because you're not really solving the fundamental issue. But I've, uh, I would put it on its head and say, no, just like buy something if you can. Take, take the easy win and then uh, really save, save the times, or save your effort for the times when you really have to change, uh, your, change your nature uh, because there's just no other way around the issue. I'm imagining the self-help book now, Buy Your Way to Happiness by Rob <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think there are just, I've got a, uh, I've been keeping a list of uh, things that I've bought that, that have improved my life, things that I've gotten a lot of kind of consumer surplus from. To, to write a blog post about and there's just like a lot of things you can buy that are extremely helpful i suppose this yeah this isn't <laughs> this isn't very consistent with the self-improvement literature i would say so so I like, what i like about this idea is that it is so much easier to do the things at the top of the hierarchy that compared to say fundamentally changing yourself and so in that sense they seem much more likely to work but i do see some challenge in like figuring out the right things to do like the right thing to buy or the right skill to build it does feel to me that that is a constant source of like mistake people make. They're like, oh, I'm going to buy this thing and it's going to really help me. And then they just never use it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think you can kind of use an outside view or take a like picture yourself in your future. Like just given how you've behaved in the past, are you the kind of person who would stick with using this thing? It can be hard to judge. Like sometimes you're just going to get it wrong no matter what you do. But I think a lot of people might have romance about themselves or romance about the idea of improving themselves that causes them to say buy something that would require a lot of diligence to, to keep using and doing and in general i think you want to predict like let's just forecast ahead that you're going to be the same kind of person the same kind of like somewhat uh lazy person who doesn't really find time in the day to to do things that are that are difficult on a consistent basis if you're like that then imagine well how likely am i to stick with this thing given given how well how long i've stuck with things in the past and then you can maybe be a bit more realistic there's lots of things you can buy that don't require so much ongoing diligence uh, to use. They're just uh, really helpful. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And uh, it really aligns with how I think about myself, where I model myself in the future as just another agent that's just like me, rather than like, hmm. as someone I have complete control over, which I think a lot of people make that mistake of being like, oh, well, I can choose on Tuesday to do, you know, work for 10 hours straight. It's like, no, you probably can't, even though you think you can, just, you know, using yeah. that outside view of like, and I think one way to frame that that's really helpful is like, would you bet on yourself succeeding using this thing? Like if you actually yeah. had to make a bet with someone? Yeah, exactly. I, I think this is a really important shift to make. And actually, I don't know how many people like think about, think about things this way versus think about like their idealized behavior. I think in philosophy, this is called, or there's a, a distinction between like actualism and possibilism. So you should think like, should you judge an action based on now, based on like what you will actually do in future or based on what it would be possible for you uh, to, to do in future? And I think you should, Basically, always think about what you will actually do, uh, given the kind of person you are and given the weakness of, of will that you have. Because if you don't do that, if you make plans that are based around the idea that in the future you'll be better and different than you are now, you're just constantly going to be angry with yourself and constantly be frustrated because you're setting things up that are going where it's very likely, it's overwhelmingly likely, just given the kind of person that you are, that you won't be able to follow through and then you'll just be creating problems for yourself rather than being content with, with at least like somewhat content with your nature and maybe trying to make some changes on the margin, but not really big changes. And then setting your, setting your life up in such a way that it works with the personality that you have. Yeah, there's a really interesting piece of advice that I think I got it from Zvi Matskowitz. I don't quite know how to say his last name, but, but basically the idea is you're, you're considering taking a behavior and then you say to yourself, well, 
if in this particular situation, like I don't take that behavior, then I can kind of assume that when I'm in a sufficiently similar situation, I'm also not going to take that Mm -hmm. behavior. And so it's like, you're acting now, not just on behalf of like this one situation and, and yourself in it, but on all versions of you in the future in sufficiently similar situations. And, yeah. and so it's like, and I, it's cool because it can give you, give you this extra motivation. Like if right now I take the right action, then like I'll probably take the right action every time I'm in a situation just like this one. Whereas if right now I don't, I probably won't. And it's sort of, it's kind of using this outside view as, as a kind of way of motivating yourself into doing the right thing. Yeah, I think there's something quite valuable about that perspective, but it can also be very dangerous. Or I've seen people misuse it. So the idea here would be like, imagine that, you know, it's Wednesday, you're like somewhat tired, you kind of you've been planning to exercise more, but you don't feel like it doing it that much this evening. The, the, the idea here is that you've got to think, well, if I don't exercise in this situation today, then I'm not going to exercise in all similar or not all similar days when I feel about the same way. And so do I want to live a life where I never exercise on days like this? Uh, and then will I meet my like targets for like how much I'm going to exercise given that? And that might motivate you to then be like, no, I want to, ex- I, like, I need to exercise more. If I follow this kind of principle of decision-making that I'm not going to exercise enough. So I'm going to do it today anyway. The problem I think is that this can lead to like pessim- like to obsessive behavior or people to beat themselves up a little bit too much. So you can imagine someone who's maybe feels a bit insecure or a bit like worried about say how much they're getting done or how much they're working. And then they, they might like say one afternoon, they're like, they don't get very much done and they feel somewhat bad about this. This pattern of thinking then causes them to think, well, now I've demonstrated that I'm like generally not a very diligent person. And so it's likely that I'm not going to work in any kind of situations like this. Maybe I'm just like a useless person who won't be able to accomplish things uh, in future. Maybe I shouldn't even try because it's just my nature or something. And I think it can kind of prompt people to feel very anxious about the future or just to feel depressed about their performance. And it's also kind of, so there is a slight area here that's going on where he's saying, well, there's a lot of flexibility with a term like in a sufficiently similar situation. Because it's not, it's not the case that someone who like procrastinates on something for an afternoon or just has an unproductive day, that doesn't mean that every day in their life is going to be unproductive. That's, that's obviously the case. That's because people have like their, their, their motivation and their energy levels vary a lot day to day. So you might be someone who like isn't very productive on days when they're feeling lethargic, but is very productive on days when they're feeling positive. But this pattern of thought, I think, can, yeah, can cause people to, be, to, to beat themselves up on, like, at, at their worst moments when they're feeling like most down already. Uh, and so I think one has to treat it with some caution. Hmm. That's a good warning. I, I like that. So one one topic related to self-improvement that we might disagree on is the value of doing self-improvement experiments. Uh, I'm someone who, as I probably mentioned in the past, am just running a self-experiment pretty much at all times. Uh, so yeah, I'm curious to see your reaction to that. Yeah. So I've heard you talk about this on the on the podcast uh, before, and, and we've talked about it in person as well. I think... One way that I'm slightly skeptical about your approach, or I wonder whether we disagree, is I, I don't tend to run these experiments that much uh, in, in my own life. And I think it's because I'm skeptical that I'm going to be able to tell uh, from my own personal experience whether a self-improvement technique is working or whether it's just kind of a placebo or like a bias in my perception. And so I'm really worried about getting, getting false positives. I think, you can imagine it's, it's very hard in social science well, to, to test these things. They'll, they'll have papers where they have you know, a control group and a, and a, and a treatment group. Uh, and they would be testing, you know, 30 people in each and tracking them over an extended period of time. And even then, they, it's very hard a lot of the time for them to get good evidence on whether this intervention works or not. Because just usually we do, we're already doing the things that have really big, obvious positive effects that, that you can notice. And so with, with other interventions where it's not clear whether you should do them, we're uh, potentially looking for like relatively small effects that are going to be washed out or masked in the, just the noise of ordinary life where like some days things go better than, better than others. 
and you can't really pick out the signal of like whether the the, the self improvement experiment that you're doing has has actually had a positive effect or not. I think you, you try to uh, get around this by doing experiments where you think that the effect size of the thing that you're doing is going to be very large, uh, so you'll be able to, to to notice it. But then maybe I'm just skeptical about whether there are that many ideas for things that that have such large positive effects that we don't already know about. Yeah, so those are all really interesting points. And, and I agree at face value. It's like, well, you know, if it's tough to answer what works in, you know, a, a study on 60 people where half are randomized to do the thing, half not, how could you possibly do it on yourself and like get valid answers? But I, actually, I think there are uh, at least two different ways that you can do this that are kind of subtle. One is that if you produce an effect that is like way outside the distribution of your normal uh, occurrences in your daily life, you can actually accumulate evidence very quickly. So just to give an example, imagine someone feels just depressed, like all the time, every day, you know, it's just really consistent. And then they try something and then they like, actually, that day, they feel really good. And they're like, wow, that's like really unusual. And then, you know, let's say three days later, they try it again. And then again, they have a day they feel really good. Okay, wow, that's even more evidence. And so you can see how the fact that it's outside their their baseline, it's very abnormal for them, is sort of the way that they can quickly accumulate evidence. And with a few of those trials, they can start getting there. And then there's another way they, that you can do it through timing. So some things happen on a very short time horizon. Mm. And if they happen on a short enough time horizon, then like you can try the thing, you see the effect, you're like, oh, wow, you know, it seemed to produce it. And then you try the thing again, you see the effect. And, it, and because it, the timing is so tight, you can actually figure out the causality. It's sort of the same way you can figure out, you know, if you have a bunch of switches, which one turns on the lights? Well, you just keep switching them until one of them immediately turns on the lights. So, like, oh, it's that one. Because <laughs> the timing, right? And yeah. so an example of this for me, is like basically training myself to have kind of positive thoughts when I do certain things. Like one of the ones that I had going for like a couple of years was whenever I would check social media, I would, I would, I built a habit of um, thinking of something that makes me happy. And that like, I would just get this immediate happiness boost. And so suddenly I was like having these happy thoughts where, you know, many times more often than normal. And I would just get this immediate you know, burst of, of happy feeling when I would do it. So, so curious to hear your reaction to those kind of strategies. Yeah, I, I basically agree completely. I think we agree on the statistics and how you do the Bayesian updating here. And if the effect, if, if basically it's pushing you out of the distribution that you ordinarily have, then that's very strong evidence. And if it's happening immediately and repeatedly, then that's really strong evidence. So maybe it's just that I'm like unduly pessimistic about the ability to find things that you could do that in, like improve your, your well-being in a significant way or in like such a large way that it stands out and, that have, and where the effects are repeated and consistent and uh, really fast. Maybe I should just say, if, if your experience is that there are such things, then I should be embracing these self-experiments more. Yeah, so let me just give you some examples. And, and I, don't, I don't think this is going to be mind-blowing, but I'm pretty convinced that these things actually did the thing that I claim. So yeah. one was the back pain one that I mentioned. And I think I mm. basically seemed to have solved it by eventually switching to a standing desk. It took a bunch of experiments. So, you know, I tried one of those vibrating things that like tells you when you're a bad posture. And that didn't seem to particularly solve my problem. And then I tried different chairs and that helped a little bit. But then the standing desk goes like, I just don't have back pain anymore. It's amazing, you know? So that, that, that's, a, that's a really nice one. And I think often when there's like a pro acute problem like that, that's actually a really good sign that we might want to go try like five different ways to solve it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Maybe I just don't think of stuff like that as self-experiments. I just think of them as like trying a product or like seeing whether I like playing badminton or something like that. But maybe I should, I should think of them in this, in this way. Yeah, I guess it depends how you frame it. Another one is that basically I designed a morning routine for myself. And so uh, what's nice about that is now I have like this, I have a set of habits I do every morning when I wake up and I can very easily like attach a new habit to like try a new thing whenever I want. So it's like, 
you know, so, so for example, part of my morning routine is like, I drink a bunch of water because I like, I feel like I'm dehydrated when I wake up and it's like, Oh, I can keep, you know, I can keep adjusting that. Another, and you know, another part of that is I do a kind of stretch for my shoulder. Cause I had like a shoulder problem. And after adding that to my morning routine, this like shoulder problem I had for many years, it got way better. And so, you know, I'm like reasonably convinced that that solved it. So it's, it's a lot of things like that. But one thing I'll just add is that most of my cell experiments fail. And so it, maybe there's just a difference in, in expectation. It's like, I expect to do five to 10 experiments for one that like is worth keeping. <laughs> so maybe our base rates aren't that different. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I'm just thinking. So maybe my intuitions about the effect sizes of things is, is trained by, you know, reading papers in medicine and reading papers in social science where, uh, you know, a, a 0.2 standard deviation improvement is regarded as like pretty good or a 0.4 standard deviation improvement is regarded as very good. You know, like if you're looking at antidepressant drugs, I guess they think that it might uh, might improve your well-being by like 0.2 standard deviations on well-being. But that's like sufficiently in the noise that you need like really big experiments and very good methodology uh, to pick it up. But maybe there's something funny about like the kinds of things that they're testing in that context, which means that they're perhaps not as big as the effects that you're getting by changing things in, in your life. It would be a little bit strange to think, well, wouldn't you test the things that are likely to have the biggest, most obvious effect. And yet it seems like very often academics and doctors are studying things where the effects are, are difficult to see. Yeah. So I'm so glad you brought that up because I think there's so many interesting things to talk about with this. So when you look at something like an antidepressant, they're measuring the average effect. Mm. And uh, my belief about that is that some people are not helped at all by antidepressants when they're even, even if they're you know really depressed and other people are helped significantly. And that the, what they're really measuring is the average effect. So in other words, if you get, what did you say, 0.2 uh, standard deviations from the mean as like the effect size, if, if, you, mm. if that's the effect that you're talking about, it might be really that like half the people are getting 0.4 standard deviations from the mean and half are getting none. Obviously, it's not that simple. And Scott Alexander has an interesting blog post where he discusses this possibility. But one thing that I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about, which I think is super fascinating, is that you might think that you want to try interventions that have low variance, right? Where like the variance mm. of outcomes across people is like is very low so it's like oh yeah it just consistently works for everyone but actually if you're doing self experiments high variance things actually can be very appealing as long as the mm. there's not too much tail risk like you don't want to do something that like might kill you or really hurt you but high variance is great because it means that there's a chance you're going to get actually a really high effect size and then if it doesn't work if you're on the you know the left side of the mean okay you're just going to stop it anyway it's not going to have that much damage so I think that, that, you know, taking the average effect, which is almost always what is studied in science, is actually very misleading and not really what you care about when you're talking about testing yourself on the individual level. Now, of course, you'd rather try things that have higher average effects than lower average effects. So that's the sense in which you care about the average. But high variance is actually good, not bad when it comes to self-experiments. Yeah, this reminds me, I actually, I started taking antidepressants a couple of years ago. I, I experimented with them on exactly this basis where I was like, well, uh, why, why not give it a go? Uh, I, like I was. I was a bit unhappy, but I wasn't super depressed. But I thought, you know, I'll give anti I'll try taking antidepressants. And if they seem to make me happier, then I'll keep taking them. Uh, and I could potentially keep taking them for years or decades. So I get like a huge return on that. And if I and if I don't like taking them, then I can just stop taking them. And, and the damage is kind of limited because it might just be a test of a couple of couple of months. And as it turned out, I think they had like a massive positive effect on my well being. It's like one of the best things I've ever done in terms of improving, improving my life. That's awesome. So yeah, I, I, I remember doing calculations on this. And it is just like, it's very clearly worth experimenting with something that might benefit you for, for many decades, even if you think it has a relatively a low likelihood of working, so long as there isn't a risk of persistent or like permanent negative effects from trying it. 
So I guess like, yeah, the, I think the, the most sophisticated pushback I got on this was there's some reports of people who try antidepressants and then think that it makes them worse off even, if, even after they stop taking it. If that's true, then that changes the math quite a lot. But as long as, the negative, as, long as any negative effects uh, stop when you stop trying them out, then it's a reason to, to experiment with a lot of things, including antidepressants potentially. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, and I would just say uh, yeah, the risk of, of long-term effects, uh, I think, is always a concern and should be taken seriously. But it's also really tough to say because a lot of times you can have a situation where someone like happens to start antidepressants and then something also changes around the same time. And then when they go off the antidepressant, they have this ne- negative effect. You know, for example, people can mm-hmm. lose, you know, lose their like sexuality. You know, this is something mm-hmm. that people report sometimes, but it might be that they, they would have lost it anyway. And so I think it's, it's just really tough to tell. You know, the best we can do is often say, well, we think it's like less than an X percent chance, but we can't be sure whether there's really any risk or it's just like, you know, a small risk. Yeah, it does seem like it's just going to be really hard to, to pick these things up without doing, a, I guess, a very large experiment of people taking it for a little while and then ceasing to take it. Drug companies are not going to have a big incentive to figure <laughs> out if it has permanent damage, no, right? It sounds very expensive and like there's not a lot of commercial value in it. So I think probably we often are just not going to be really sure about that, but maybe we can rule out common, like large negative ongoing effects. But yeah, we, it's going to be hard to rule out that some people have had these negative effects or, or to rule out that it's an illusion. And in fact, those negative effects just happen to coincide with them trying out antidepressants and, and aren't causally related. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. R- right now, I'm uh, doing a self-experiment where uh, I three times a day, the same time every day, I get pinged with like uh, with a survey that I created that measures how, how tired I feel in different dimensions. And then I'm trying to correlate it with the sleep data from an aura ring to see if I can like predict which part of sleep like makes me feel tired. So like, for example, <laughs> is, it, is it about what time of day I wake up? Is it about how many hours I slept? Is it about what time I go to sleep? Is it about the amount of deep sleep versus uh, slow wave sleep or whatever? So uh, that's, like- that's my current experiment. Yeah. Are you going to have statistical, like, are you going to be able to get a large enough sample? Because it seems like there's, there's so many different aspects of sleep that it could be, and your energy levels are probably pretty volatile and noisy anyway. But it seems like you'd have to run, like, be collecting this data for years, maybe, to be able to, you know, develop a regression model of what's causing what. Well, I'm hoping in 100 days I'll have enough to to get a oh. sense. But it, but if the effects are small, you're right; it could it could just be impossible. If the effects are yeah. large, then then hopefully, you know, I also get three measurements a day of how I'm feeling. So that's, that's, yeah. We'll see. Uh, also, I, I, I only put a 20% chance on getting any value out of this experiment. So. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it, it makes sense. Firstly, if you find that you enjoy, that is fun to do. Also, if you're going to be able to publish the results and then potentially benefit lots of readers. Because I guess a lot of these uh, self-experiments, they might not be justified just, based, just on a selfish basis because just one person isn't enough of a beneficiary to, to, to pay them off. Especially if, as you say, the likelihood of even successfully getting any result is fairly low. But then if you can share it with the world and other people can benefit from the advice, then it you know, increases the benefit many fold. Oh, yeah, great point. So I like your idea of a line manager. And can you tell us a little bit about that and how that relates to improving your life? Sure. So I guess I've just noticed for myself and for others that having a weekly meeting with someone who has a sense of what you're working on and maybe uh, what challenges you're having, who you kind of, you know, you know bring a report of how the last week has gone and then a plan for the next week and maybe like a couple of discussion topics of things that aren't going perfectly uh, that you like to talk about more or maybe things that are going well that could go even better but basically just having a normal line manager like most people do at functional organizations where they work is incredibly helpful 
But then there's this funny thing that people who aren't inside organizations that are functional, I'll say if they're studying or maybe they're unemployed or like, you know, are privately learning things or working on their own personal projects without a, without a colleague, they often don't have this. And I think it leads to potentially to really significant losses of productivity and people potentially become depressed or, or, or waste a lot of time. Maybe this is most stark if we're talking about, you know, undergraduates. So I think undergraduates, are, you know, are, they might have a lot of difficulty with some class and or they're finding it hard or they're having like issues in their personal life. And if they don't have anyone to talk about this with, they, they don't have like a regular weekly scheduled meeting where this is the natural point at which you're going to, to bring this up, then they can just start like avoiding thinking about the thing or not wanting to, not wanting to grapple with it because it just... The problem gradually becomes worse over time, and there's no prompt where you have to bring it up because no one's going to ask. And I reckon that undergraduates could potentially just get a huge amount of value out of having a weekly check-in with someone who kind of knows what they're working on, maybe like knows what things they're likely to struggle with. Is going to say like, "Are you really anxious about this test? Are you avoiding working on this project because you feel worried about it? And then how can we deal with that issue? Like, how can we get you to do the things uh, that you think it's, uh, it's it's best for you to do?" Um, like, yeah, are you becoming depressed and, and how can we work around that? Just having a conversation about these issues, well, firstly, it causes people to notice problems that otherwise they might just not consciously notice. They just become problems and they just take it for granted. But also then to actually go through the active process of thinking of solutions, which for some reason, just when people are on their own, uh, they tend, they, they sometimes just forget to do, especially about stuff that's kind of, uh, you know, causes people to feel bad about themselves or some kind of shame or guilt or, or anxiety. Uh, people can just avoid thinking about those things until they become even worse problems. And then they don't want to think about them even more. You know, it's really interesting you bring this up because one of the most valuable things I feel like I do for my team members that I work with is simply having a weekly meeting. And what I think about doing in that meeting is, first of all, asking like, how did things go this week? What did you get done? What problems came up? And then like, help them brainstorm, problem solve anything that came up. But then the other piece of that is just helping them set goals for the for the next week. So I think that combination of like be an accountability check-in on like what they got done, helping them resolve any problems or blocking points, and then helping them set goals for the next week. Like I feel like that's like, you know, 70% of my job as a manager is just doing yeah. that. And it's so valuable to people. And it, and as you say, it's not something that people would easily be able to do for themselves, but like almost anyone could benefit from that. Yeah. It's it's very strange that it is so valuable. But you know, I I find this myself that you know, I have a weekly check-in with, with one of my colleagues and he might just ask as simple a question as like, is this really what you should be working on? And I'd be like, you know, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> the plan that I've written down here like actually isn't like the top priorities. And it'll be like, is there anything here that you could delegate to someone else who'd be able to do it better? And there is, there very often is something that I should just like take <laughs> off my list and give to someone else. And in a, yeah, it's, it's so obvious that it's kind of, it's a slight mystery why you can't do this kind of in conversation with yourself in your own head. But for whatever reason, I think many people, at least including me, are not inclined to do this unless there actually is a person there who, for whom you have to make notes. You have to write down, how did the last week go? What went well? What went badly? What are you going to do next week? Like, is this your priorities? Unless there is that prompt to do it, I'm just kind of like not going to do it. I just won't get to it most of the time. I suppose there's other people I know who really love to plan things in great detail and they just go off and do it autonomously. And maybe for them, the one-on-one line manager check-in isn't as valuable. But for me, it's, it's just uh, indispensable. You know, there's another thing that I, I feel like comes up a lot when I'm managing people, which is that it seems like there's a strong tendency to confuse intermediate goals with long-term goals. So it's like, you know, you're working mm. on a project and you've got this long-term goal of achieving this like outcome that you really care about. 
And then it's like, okay, in order to achieve that outcome, you have to make a bunch of intermediate goals because like you can't just directly, you know, aim towards the thing you're trying mm. to do. You know, just as, as a classic example of this, it's like, you know, if you're thinking about the account accountants at a large firm, you can't tell the accountants maximize profit right? <laughs> that doesn't work. Even if the goal of the organization is to maximize profit, you need like intermediate goals for the accountants that are not maximize profit, right? So you make a bunch of inter intermediate goals, but then it seems like the human brain just does this funny trick where we get confused about the difference between intermediate and long-term goals. We just don't differentiate. And so what I find mm -hmm. often happens with people I work with is that there's this slight drift where they start taking their inter intermediate goals too seriously and like losing sight of like what we're trying to get to. And they start taking actions that are like only make sense if you actually cared about the intermediate goal. And so that I view another uh, role that I have that I think is really important is just nudging them back being like, ah, oh, remember though, we're trying to get to that thing over there and just yeah. keep, keep nudging them from drifting off of that vision. And I wonder if there's also like a personal version of this. that's like the things we're trying to achieve in our own lives. We like, we get wrapped up in our intermediate goals. Like, oh, I've got to take this pre-med class so I can, then apply to med school mm. so I can get into med school. So, you know, I mean, it's like, we forget what we're actually trying to get to. Yeah. I think, yeah, there's a common trap that I see, which I think, yeah, it doesn't affect, it doesn't affect me so much. So I don't quite entirely understand the internal psychology of it. But it's something where, so you start on a project that seems like it's a good idea. And then you find that maybe it's like, it's quite hard and you're not super motivated by it anymore. And maybe it's like, it's not accomplishing like quite as much, not producing as much value as you thought before. But people don't want to drop it maybe because they feel like it's a failure, it would indicate that they're a failure to like give up on working on something. Maybe this is an issue for people who are more conscientious than me. I'm just like happy to stop doing things all the time. <laughs> I'm just like that kind of person. But if you're someone who, you know, judges yourself by kind of how hard you're working and like how much you're willing to like stick with something when it's difficult, you can get stuck continuing to work on something that is unpleasant, that isn't delivering that much value. Maybe out of, yeah, I, I, I'm not entirely sure, but it's something about, I think, self-image uh, and about like, not wanting to feel to yourself that you're someone who doesn't stick with things and is like a hard worker. So this is, it's like the sunk cost fallacy, but rather than being trapped by this feeling of like, oh, I don't want to have wasted all that previous effort and time. It's more like a sense of identity. Like I don't want to be the sort of person who abandons things. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very pro giving up and very pro quitting. I think if something is not fun and like isn't stimulating, you know, like you don't feel like doing it, that's a great, great reason not to take on a task and it's a great reason to stop doing it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> obviously you shouldn't give up on everything that's like not really fun to do at the time. But I think sometimes people, if, if they're not like, if, if at a deep level, they don't like worry that much about their own well-being or they don't feel like being selfish and wanting to do things that are fun for them is like a good reason to do things at work. They can just like carry on doing something that's actually massively draining a lot of enthusiasm from their life and a lot of uh, a lot of pleasure from their life, and just isn't delivering enough like value to to justify that 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 cost. It seems like there are these kind of dual traps, one on either side. One mm. is is where people they just keep flipping projects. You know, they'll start something mm. and then they'll get something shinier will come along. And you know, so when you first start a project, it's exciting and it's new and you're learning a lot. And then eventually, you, you start realizing all the challenges with it, and you're doing the same thing every day, and it's boring. So like, I do see those people. And then the other, on the other hand, there's people that like are sticking with things that clearly are dead end projects and they, you know, they don't want to give up on them and, and they're kind of grinding away at this thing that's not producing value. And I, and I don't know whether it's just, there's just different types of people that get stuck in, mm. in these opposing traps or, or maybe uh, there's something else to be said about like, you know, how we can avoid uh, falling too far on one side or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I have seen the people switching projects a lot in the past. I 
Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what to say about that. I guess if if you are just bored of doing something and you're not going to feel motivated by it going forward, then that, that might be a good reason to quit, even if there would be a lot of value from from continuing, because realistically, you're not going to be able to stick with that for long enough to to get those benefits. But maybe maybe what you need then is then you need to become a manager who trains other people and like change the role, but still get lots of value from all of the experience that you that you've built up. Hmm. Yeah, I don't, don't have a strong view on this one. When, when I was young, I had a really major problem, which is that I would, I would start projects and then I would never finish them. And mm. so I feel like I, you know, I had like 20 projects I started of different sorts and didn't finish them. And the, this is probably the most life-changing, like one single thing I ever did, which is that I figured out how to like hack my, my system to make it so I stick with things when I want to stick with them. And basically for me, it's just involve another person. Like it's really simple. Mm. But if there's another person that is like relying on me, that's extremely strong force for me because I don't want to let them down. And that's not going to work for everyone, but there may be for any given person who, who does have a challenge of like just, you know, stopping projects too often or, or flipping projects too often, you might be able to find something like that. Maybe it is involving another person so that you get that social reinforcement or maybe it's something else. So, so anyway, for people, for people who are like my young self, that, that's something to think about. Yeah. I think for me, the main issue there is that I have to break things down into a sufficiently small chunk that I get like positive reinforcement within a like foreseeable amount of time. So for example, if I'm producing content, 80,000 hours or producing a podcast, if it's going to take more than 20 or 30 hours of work to complete something before I get to release it and people get to like, tell me whether they liked it or not. And I get like that, that adrenaline rush of releasing something and seeing, seeing whether it was uh, what I hoped it would be then it's just, it's not motivating enough to start. And so there's a high probability that I just won't begin or I won't finish the task. So, but you can work around that. I guess it's like an example of using, you know, change the systems rather than change yourself. Like figure out a, a chunk of content that is uh, finishable within 10 to 20 hours, because then that is really motivating because I can see that, you know, tomorrow, if I work on this, I'll be able to release it. And then, you know, maybe people will enjoy it. Maybe they won't, but either way, it'll be exciting. That's, that's one way in which podcasts an easier piece of content to produce than a really long article or a really long piece of writing. Like the long piece of writing, especially if you're trying to be comprehensive, you, you foresee that it's going to take so long to finish this, that it's like not very yummy in the moment to begin doing it because you're not going to get any benefit from it for just too long. Whereas with the podcast, uh, usually you're able to finish, like prepare for those, record them and get them out in a sufficiently short uh, timeline that it is really motivating to begin. Yeah, maybe you can build in ways to make it like kind of have more feedback right away. Like, even if it's just like, oh, as soon as I finish this first draft, I'm going to send this to two friends and get their feedback or something to just tighten that loop a little bit. Yeah. Or you can like, or you can post like component ideas on social media and see what people think of them. Yeah, that's great. Like different sections of it and get reactions. And suddenly yeah. now it's exciting to, uh, <laughs> to write those different sections. We can tie together a couple of things here and point out like why PhDs are just so difficult and so awful. So you don't have a line manager, basically. Like if you're lucky, well, it depends on the course, depends on the university, of course. If you have a really good thesis advisor, then maybe they'll play that role, but you might kind of have to convince them to do it. <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of thesis advisors, uh, a lot of academics, they're just so split between many different PhD students and many projects that you kind of have to fight to get attention from them. And, you know, every half hour meeting you get is just incredibly valuable, but you, just, but you don't get them that often. They also tend not to be like very good managers in general and, get, and give you like very clear feedback about what's good and bad and how well you're doing in general, which tend to, tends to disorient uh, people. And also often you're working on a very large chunk of work that you're not really going to get to release or get any positive or negative feedback on from the public for potentially years. And so there's, I think there's many aspects of the ways that, of the way that PhD programs are organized, which means that they're a nightmare for mental health and they're a nightmare for motivation. And just like many people, unless they're, extremely conscientious or, or, or just really love the thing that they're working on and are, and are intrinsically motivated by it. But they tend to like 
fall over and have difficulties at some point over the three to six year process? Yeah, it does seem like a lot of PhD students are really unhappy. It's just that's been my anecdotal observation, like talking to PhD students. Um, yeah. And having having gone through my PhD myself, you know, there's something incredibly exhilarating when you finish, but you also kind of realize like my dissertation is going to be read by like five people, you know? Yeah. Oh, so there's another thing that very often it's kind of all just instrumental rather than terminally valuable. So you kind of know in your heart that maybe you're not doing like really your best work. I guess, yeah, this is going to depend on the program, depend on the field, but it's it's much harder to motivate yourself to do something that is just to like signal that you're good enough to get a PhD to get the qualification than to do something that you intrinsically care about. Yeah, there's hurdles like oral exams and things like that that are very much just like oh you have to do this to jump a barrier. Yeah, I think the if if I could like change one thing about these programs, it would be pairing up PhD students or like well hire potentially hiring more people to be act as line managers to to these students because academics just don't have time to do it. We need to hire like a new class of staff member that meets with the PhD students every week in order to guide them through their issues and like keep them on track. Or alternatively, if you can't afford that, then you should pair them up and like have accountability system where, you know, two people who hopefully are well-matched will meet every week and go through the problems that they're having with one another and get to know one another fairly well and build a model of what advice will be helpful. Yeah. And matching them up, it's like free, right? They could just be implemented. <laughs> right. that, that's a really great idea. Yeah, I mean, I suppose PhD students could potentially implement this themselves if if they had uh, if they had the initiative, but it could be. It seems like the kind of thing that would be a lot easier if it had the stamp of endorsement of the of the university. Right, if it was just expected that you would do it, that's a big uh, big difference. Yeah. Actually, when I started my PhD, they assign you like a faculty advisor before you get your like official thesis advisor to just mm. guide you. And I met with this guy, and he was a really famous mathematician, and I could just tell he didn't give a shit. <laughs> I, I never met with him again, but it was a nice idea. <laughs> so yeah. Well, that's a problem. I mean, there's a, I mean, there's lots of things that are strange about universities, but, but yeah, one of them is getting academics who are like brilliant thinkers who really should be just focusing on doing the best research that they can do because that's what they were hired to do to perform all of these other funny roles, like including even just lecturing. Like, why not get someone who's just a great lecturer? They don't have to necessarily be the best researchers, and get someone who's like good at management to do the management work rather than pretend that you know a top mathematician is necessarily going to be good at managing and guiding PhD students. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't seem like kind of a weird combination of roles. Yeah, I mean, I guess of course you need, of course you need PhD or you need like good researchers in the in the picture there somewhere. But I think there's there's also other things to be performed that that they're not necessarily the experts at. There's just so many things about the academic system that are kind of bizarre and seem like they must just be path dependent. You know, mm. it just must be like, oh, this is how it was done, and maybe there were good reasons, you know, hundred years ago for it, but it just now it's just kind of tradition almost. Yeah. So let's pivot topics. And I want to talk to you about your podcast a bit. So again, it's this is the 80,000 hours podcast. Highly recommend checking out. It's really great. Uh, and one thing that I learned from Rob is about the value of, of doing really long form content. So Rob, tell us a bit about what, what do you like so much about long form content? And, and also what is long form for you? <laughs> right? Yeah. So at the, at the 80,000 hours podcast, we try to like do things in, in an unusual level of depth that ideally people just can't access anywhere else. To try to cover topics, you know, to a level of like, you know, argument A, and then the response to that, and then the response to that, and then the response to that, uh, in, in a way that will be very hard for people to find elsewhere outside, perhaps, of academic papers. Now, I think one thing I've just noticed over the years is that there's just something unreasonably good about the format of a long conversation between two people, and by long I mean maybe like two to two to six hours. I think the the longest episode of the 80,000 hours podcast that we've had uh, was five hours. And the typical length is maybe uh, two and a half. And I regard like two and a half as just like, it's just, it's just really not enough to get into a lot of the most interesting issues that I'm uh, keen to explore, especially if, if you have a couple of different topics. 
That's amazing. But there's something, yeah, unusually good about the format. And, and I think it's that this is the way that people have kind of always learned really difficult areas of expertise and knowledge through history. It's through talking to people who know a lot about them and then absorbing the information from them and, and responding to what the other person is thinking and going back and forth. So it's very engaging. It's more engaging to listen to a conversation between two people who know a lot about a topic than it is usually to listen to a lecture, and at least for me, than it is to listen to a book uh, most of the time. The, the, the fact that there's a social element of two people talking manages to, to, to keep your attention, even if the topic would otherwise uh, be a little bit dry. Another benefit is that in conversation and, and using audio and voice, I think people are able to communicate a lot better uh, than they can using the written word, or at least a lot faster with a lot more subtlety. So just, just by speaking, just by the way that I'm talking, I'm communicating a lot about like, you know, the fact that I'm thinking, thinking things through rather than really confident about them. I'm able to communicate, yeah, my, my confidence level on all of the different little things that I'm saying much more than I could. Well, I could do it in text, but it's just going to take a lot of extra words and a lot of extra effort uh, to, get that, uh, in, to, to get that in writing. And so because we just naturally were brought up having conversations all the time, we know how to talk to other people. We potentially know how to express our ideas to them. This is a very cheap format to produce as well. So we've thought about this from the point of view of 80,000 hours. We realized a couple of years ago that we just had like so much knowledge, so many things that we'd learned, that it was going to take us forever to write them out in a really clear way in text on the website. It was potentially going to take many years, but we could communicate most of that pretty quickly just by talking into a microphone and explaining our views. And also it would give people a right sense of how confident we are about these different ideas that we have. And I guess. I spend probably several hours a day listening to podcasts, or most of them are long-form interviews. And I think kind of the invention of this very long conversation interview format has allowed us to produce on a mass scale lots of kind of tacit knowledge, lots of kind of, like, I guess academics call it the gray literature. It's like knowledge that experts have in a field that hasn't yet been written down in a paper or hasn't yet been written down in a textbook, but something that people kind of know or that they think that they know, to get a lot of that out to the light. To, to get it on tape where people who are interested can hear it in a way that just people wouldn't have had time to do if they had to write it down in, in a different format that, that took longer. Uh, and as a bonus, it's kind of engaging. It's enjoyable to listen to. And because it's so cheap, you can produce it on a big scale and have like lots of different niche topics covered, covered in this format. So yeah. Yeah, you know, that reminds me, about maybe five years ago, I was having a conversation with someone regarding some AI safety related stuff. And I was like, oh, where's the best source for this information? And they're like, oh, nobody's ever written this down. Just go talk to like person A and person B and person C. And, you're, and it's just mm -hmm. like, wow, it's kind of amazing that like there really is so much knowledge that like nobody's bothered to, you know, write a really clear essay explaining it yet. And so I really yeah. like the idea of like trying to extricate that. Yeah, there's, there's just so much uh, knowledge like that. And like normally there's only a small number of people who can access that because they are, there's only a small number of people who have the ability to actually get a meeting and a conversation, especially like a social casual conversation with someone. But by recording those conversations and putting them online, like a far a large number of people who are interested uh, in those topics can, can get access to that same information. Another thing that's going on here is, I guess, as a kind of infovore, someone who's just spent like several, I guess, two decades now almost reading blogs all the time and you know, listening to podcasts, listening to radio shows, like trying to absorb information. After a while, I started to find that I was just hearing the same thing again and again, because there'd be perhaps some, like there's some concept, like say asymmetric information. And so people would explain that and I'd hear that again and again, because if you're going to talk about that, you kind of have to explain what asymmetric information is at the outset. 
I won't bother to do it here. But and then maybe you'll have if if the thing goes on for like longer than 10 minutes, then you'll hear like some objections or like some applications. Like you'll hear about the most common application of that idea that people talk about. And maybe you hear an objection to that application. And then it kind of stops at that point because nothing was really going on long enough to then go to like, but then what's the response to that? Like, what are the people, the advocates for this idea? Why do they defend it? And then what do the critics say to that? And then what do the defenders say about that? There's all of this like extra knowledge that just doesn't fit within a short time frame because you have to start at the beginning always. And so if you're only going for half an hour, then you can only get in the ideas that fit within like a half hour of back and forth. And that's something that's really good. Like if you're willing to go five hours, you can really dig in deep be like to, to like all of the discourse that's happening internally between these people who have spoken for many, many hours about these topics and actually grow to understand the disagreements that they have, like in the way that they think about it, rather than just uh, like it's only seeing the most superficial responses and the most superficial objections and not really then trying to grapple with whether they're legitimate or not. Oh, that's so interesting. It reminds me of two things. One, the way that it's almost impossible to get a deeper understanding of a subject if you only ever read like sort of the popular media on it. Yeah. Like you can understand a bunch of things. You can learn a lot, but then you'll kind of hit a wall. An example of this is like learning about quantum mechanics, right? It's like, if you just only ever read what's in the popular press, like you will be limited by the understanding of the authors which is usually not mm. that deep because usually they're not scientists, you know, they're journalists, maybe they're science journalists, but they're still not, you know, scientists. And, and I think this is a big problem. A lot of people have who read a lot is they don't go to like that next deeper source to, to kind of mm. get the full, fuller picture. It also, what you said reminds me of why our debates in politics, like our presidential debates are such a farce. Like if you mm. actually wanted to make progress on a topic, you would need like the presidential candidates for like five hours in a room being able yeah. to respond. Like, Oh, you said that. Well, well, I think this, and then they get to respond to your response, and so on and so forth. Like you, you really would need that chain. And, and really, they could spend five hours on like one aspect of transportation policy, <laughs> like one tiny part of their agenda. <laughs> Absolutely, because like in as much as experts disagree, often there's like quite subtle reasons, and there might be like methodological disagreements that you have to go into. Like in real life, if you were having a conversation with someone about a complicated, you know, intellectual topic. You know that you can go on for hours and hours and not necessarily yet agree or not entirely understand their position and, and all of the reasons that they think what they think. I hadn't made this connection before, but it reminds me of this idea. I think that Noam Chomsky used to, used to promote uh, like 50 years ago called concision, where they noticed that like, to, yeah, spots on the news or on television in the United States at that time tended to, they, they would discuss a topic for five or 10 minutes. And basically this meant that within that medium, if you had an opinion that you couldn't explain and justify within a time slot of five to 10 minutes, often having to share it potentially with another guest and the host, then there was just no way for you to communicate that. So if you are outside of the mainstream and in order to like explain your view and bring someone on board and explain why you believe it, it was going to take half an hour or an hour or longer than that. Then you're just like, you're just out. <laughs> There's no way that you can promote your ideas through the medium that through which people are mostly communicating information. And likewise, I guess, you know, the half hour or hour long radio program is a bunch better than that. There's a lot more things that you can explain uh, in, in that format than a five or 10 minute television slot. But there's a lot of stuff that doesn't fit, which is like this very long back and forth of like really understanding why two people disagree on their own terms and, and deeply understanding someone's worldview uh, as they see it, which is one thing that I do try to get out. I'd be like, well, we're going to, I'm just going to talk to you for three hours and, you know, I'll, I'll do some pushback. But basically at the end, I want to have this product that explains as best we can do in three hours, how this person sees the world and how they see uh, all of these different topics. Because that's something that is often just quite hard to, to get from, from any other source. And it's something that works so well in the long form interview medium. Well, you know, I think one thing my people might say about this is, 
aren't people's attention spans kind of getting smaller and smaller? Like, don't, don't people just want like 15 second TikTok videos? How is it that someone's willing to listen to, you know, a three hour episode? So mm. curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, many of them clearly are. Let's, let's see. So we've done some data analysis on this. So I've looked at the data on does episode length affect how, what fraction of the episode people on average tend to listen to? It turns out, you know, our, the Apple podcasting app now, uh, if you allow it, will report back information on what parts of the episode you've listened to and at what point you stopped listening. And it does, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but the longer an episode, it's true that people tend to listen to a smaller fraction of it. But even after like two or three or even four hours, a lot of people are still sticking with you. You still might have a third of the original audience kind of four hours in, especially if the interview is interesting. And also a lot of people drop out early on, but then you just kind of get this long plateau where if someone was willing to stick with you for two hours, they find this guest really interesting and they might just I mean, this is a thing that they're interested in. It's something they can't get elsewhere. So they're just going to potentially stick with it for you as long as you have interesting things to talk about. And sure, there's a lot of other things that are competing for attention. But, you know, people often have niche interests. They're especially interested to hear, you know, Glenn Wiles' ideas about, you know, economic reform or institutional reform. And if that's the thing that you care about, like, why not just keep coming back to this episode? You know, listen to it in half hour blocks, and then you've got to go do something else and then come back and listen to the rest of it. You don't have to sit down and listen to three hours at a, at a time. You can always just open up your phone and continue listening later on. So I don't, yeah, I, I, I understand why it is the case that there doesn't seem, at least for us, to be much of a correlation between length of episode and, and what fraction people listen to. Because if you're into it, like, why not just keep going? Yeah, actually, honestly, it makes me feel good about humanity because I, I worry about things like Twitter and TikTok where it just seems to be like obliterating our attention spans and like all we can handle is you know, these tiny packets of information one after another that are you know, constantly changing to keep our attention. So yeah. <laughs> maybe you feel a little bit better about the world, people listening to your four-hour episodes. Well, it's another great thing where, the, where kind of the medium is changing what people absorb and, and how they absorb it and what they're, they're open to listening to. So I'm someone who does struggle with attention span. If I'm sitting at my laptop, uh, there's like a high risk that I'll get distracted and, you know, open up another website. That's maybe not the thing that I think I, I should be reading. But with audio, I can, you know, go for a walk for four hours and just listen to four hours straight on some really technical topic. And because I'm like out and about, just like, uh, you know, concentrating through the thing that's in, that's in my earbuds. And it's, it's not so easy for me to get distracted by something else because I don't have my laptop in front of me. I'm capable of absorbing just tons of information that way. So yeah, I think if you, if you haven't tried using audio to improve your attention span and maybe work around the way that the internet has maybe shrunk your attention span, then, uh, then give it a go. I mean, obviously books are wonderful, but one of the things I really like about podcasts is they just feel like they take less effort. And so you really mm. can do things like, you know, wash the dishes <laughs> or take a walk or, you know, that kind of thing while you're, while you're listening. So that's, that's really nice. Yeah, they slot into breaks in the rest of people's time. I mean, I, I, yeah, I really struggle to read books on paper because I do just get distracted if I'm sitting down on a couch in, in, in one place. But I've got this app, I think it's called Voice Dream Reader, that will absorb like a PDF or an, an ebook of any kind, and then we'll just read it to you from your phone. And actually, a nice thing about all of this audio stuff is that you can adjust the speed so that the ideas are coming at you just at the limit of your ability to process them comfortably. And that means that there's not much like spare brain capacity to get distracted by other things. At least that's the effect it has on me. By, by setting the, the reading pace of, of a book, I can force myself to focus on it because that's the only way that I can, that I can make sense of it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you've never tried that, I highly recommend you know, just slowly pushing the speed to kind of the limit of your ability because you might actually realize that you, you're more focused. And then, of course, you're also just consuming more content per minute. So you know, if, it, if it brings you X units of content and you can speed <laughs> up, well, now you have you know, even more units of content in the same amount of time. So nice, nice life hack there. 
Well, there's, there's some research on communication speed uh, between people, which suggests that across languages and across times, people tend to communicate about the same amount of information uh, in any kind of given minute, uh, no matter what, what language they're speaking. Uh, so if you have a language that, uh, you know, is very, like, packs a lot of information into each word, then people tend to say words uh, more slowly. Basically, that's, that's the trade-off. But it seems like the limiting factor is people's ability to produce speech, because like producing speech is kind of intellectually demanding. And so you can only like process the ideas and figure out how to verbalize them so quickly. But people can understand speech much faster than they can speak. You know, they can, at least I can understand people speaking at about twice the speed that they naturally speak. And so now that we have this ability to just take people talking and then double the speed, we could potentially absorb like twice as much conversation as we've ever been able to do historically when we were just bottlenecked by someone's ability to, to verbalize things. I think that's really cool. One minor caveat, though, is sometimes when, I, when I'm listening at 3x for a little while and I try to have a conversation with a normal human, I have this like weird <laughs> effect. I'm like, what's happening? Why am I having thoughts in between the words they're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I haven't noticed that, but that's actually kind of surprising. It's something that you would expect to happen. So let's let's pivot again this time to a topic I think we actually substantially disagree about, and I, and I think mm-hmm. we're going to have a challenging but interesting discussion about it, which is basically how complicated are human values, how much can we rely on thought experiments? Should we trust our intuitions about human values and so on? So do you want to open that topic up for us? Sure. So I think the, the setup is that when people are, when, when you and I are kind of probing our values, thinking about things like, you know, do I value friendship? Do I value, you know, beauty? Do I value knowledge? I'm inclined to say that I value those things, but only instrumentally, only because they bring about other benefits, like they improve my well-being, or they, you know, they make me happy, or they make me feel proud, you know, that they cause me to have good feelings. Because I think when, when you think about, uh, like, what are your fundamental values? What are the things you care about? You're more inclined to say, no, uh, I value, like, you know, I value beauty, or I value having knowledge, even if it provides no other benefit to me, even it's, it's a terminal value for you, uh, rather than something that's simply a means to an end. Um, and I, yeah, I guess there's an interesting back and forth where maybe I worry that the thought experiments that people use to try to figure out what they value can potentially mislead them and cause them to think that things that are only useful as means to ends uh, are valuable uh, in themselves. That there's like certain mental tricks that are, that are, that are going on that uh, cause them to get the wrong answer. So I'm very sympathetic to this critique in that I think it's actually quite difficult to do with the thought experiments to figure out what you value. And in fact, just to, as a, a point of evidence on this, when we were developing our intrinsic values test for our website, clearthinking.org, which you can check out, it's free. In the development of that test, we found that a lot of people were misunderstanding what intrinsic values were, even though we were trying to explain them clearly. So what we ended up doing is having a little like mini training program teaching you what intrinsic values are. Then we had a quiz to make sure you understood it. Then we actually ran our study at the end. And that way we were able, we actually ended up throwing away from one of our samples, I think it was like 30% of the sample, and another, it was like 50% based on not performing well enough on like this quiz, like making sure they understood it. Mm. So that, that's just like understanding it, you know, and then there's still additional challenges of like, you know, to what extent can you really, you know, do the thought experiments. And, and I do think it's really hard to scrub an idea from its like normal implications. So for example, let, let's say I say to you, Rob, like for the purpose of this conversation, whenever I use the word rape, I really mean a grapefruit. And it's like, it's like, okay, I can say that to you, but it's like really hard to like not have a negative reaction then to that really, mm. you know, terrible word. It's like, yeah. I think similar, similarly, it's like, you could say, well, imagine you get a piece of knowledge, but like, it actually is completely useless in all other ways. It's just completely mm. abstract. And it's like, you know, can we fully scrub that from the idea that like knowledge is really often useful? So maybe we're like secretly sneaking in our like prediction that it's going to somehow be useful when we're trying to evaluate it. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that that is kind of uh, what I think is going on. So people's like lived experience is that, you know, having knowledge is almost always really useful. And they'd like to have more knowledge, knowledge because it helps them accomplish their goals and, and achieve other things. And, and so they develop this like very strong intuitive sense that knowledge is good knowledge. I want more. And then when you ask them a hypothetical question, like imagine a piece of knowledge that is just completely useless and provides no other benefits uh, to you. Uh, maybe you don't even think about it. Like, is that useful? You get this kind of misfiring because of the positive associations that people have about knowledge. In fact, like maybe originally it, people thought that it was only useful as a means to an end, but then through lived experience, they've got so much build up so much positive associations and such a strong assumption that it's uh, valuable as a means to an end that they can't kind of, they can't get away from that. Can't get away from that positive association. They think it's they think it's good and valuable, you know, just in itself, but, itself. but they're kind of making the mistake. Yeah. And, and so I'm definitely sympathetic. That, that is an error that we can make. And, and it's a serious one. However, I do think that there are a whole bunch of things that people care about that are not just happiness or suffering or utility. And so so just to give one example, I think there are a lot of people that believe it's just intrinsically wrong to deceive others. And mm. they they if you give thought experiments where it's like, well, you could deceive your friend in order to like to save them some pain, but it would be like a very major deception. You know, you'd have to like tell a bunch of lies or you could actually be honest, but it would actually like hurt your friend. I think a lot of people would actually say, oh, no, no, like honesty is like actually intrinsically important in that scenario. Yeah, that's a very tricky one. So I think like my argument for what's going on here would be that people have learned over time that lying causes harm in general. They know that as a society, uh, if we allow people to get away with lying or allow them to kid themselves to think that lying is okay on a regular basis, then we're going to like produce a lot of, we're going to produce a lot of harm potentially. It could be like incredibly corrosive uh, to society. And maybe that it's best to pre-commit yourself to tell the truth, even in situation, even like in the specific situation, it causes harm because in the broader picture, knowing that you can believe the things that other people are telling you is just of, of uh, great value. So I could, I could, Make the case that maybe even in this specific case where it seems like in a narrow sense, lying might be the right thing to do. In fact, in the bigger picture, it would be harmful overall. And, and that will probably persuade some people. But then I think I, would, I could also make an argument, even if someone resisted that, I could say, well, the thing is, you have the intuition that lying is wrong in that situation, no matter what, like even if considering all of the flow through consequences, it, it would still be good for welfare uh, to lie. But that is because like 95% of the time when you consider lying, it's a bad thing to do and it would be harmful. And you just kind of can't get away from that like gut reaction that lying is bad. Even, even when you're told this like thing that happens to be true in this case, but is like violates the general rule that lying is bad. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's hard to know absolutely for sure. But based on my experience talking to people, I do think people seem to at least be totally convinced that they, they value it intrinsically. Or I'll tell you, I'll tell you about another one that, that is one that I think I value, which is believing true things. So for example, when I do thought experiments around, like, suppose you could be tricked into believing that you were like winning the Nobel Prize at every moment, and you would like be really happy. But like, none of your experiences would correspond to reality at all. You just like, be, mm. you just live out the rest of your life in this like utter delusion of like believing you're constantly winning the Nobel Prize. Mm. That does seem really unappealing to me. So I'm curious to hear how you react to that kind of scenario. Yeah. Well, okay, so there's a couple of different objections that one could make. So one is that it would be bad for the world for you to just become delusional, uh, because then you wouldn't be able to improve other people's well-being. So even like what I'm saying, people ought to care about is like the well-being of all, not not exclusively their own well-being. So one could make a utilitarian argument there that for why why you shouldn't become completely disconnected from reality, because then you're less useful to others. There's another one is like this is actually a more extreme case where I think it's more clear why people would have the intuition that it's wrong, because 
it really is the case that in almost all situations, just becoming massively delusional, like becoming totally disconnected from, from reality, is going to be really bad for you. Like if not immediately, then eventually. And it also prevents you from like accomplishing your, your goals in general, because you don't like know, you don't now know about the world and know how to affect it. Because you're just like, your, your beliefs are all over the place. So I, would, I imagine in that case, it's like very hard to actually imagine a hypothetical situation in which like becoming so deluded would be good for you, all things considered, and wouldn't ultimately uh, lead to, to other harms that, that would be bad. And so I, I obviously also have a very strong intuition that, you know, lying in the previous situation is wrong, even if it seems like it narrowly would produce good consequences. And I also have the intuition that I wouldn't want to believe that I was winning the Nobel Prize if I wasn't. But I just, I guess I kind of interpret that intuition somewhat differently. It maybe, I, I think that it means something else. I think something that I'm struggling to understand with the perspective that you're bringing is why the human brain would even be optimized to care about like happiness rather than say, you know, genetic survivability. <laughs> so it's like, it seems to be, it seems to be like you're working under a premise that somehow the human brain is just trying to predict what's going to like make us happy. And, and, mm. but maybe I'm misinterpreting your view. No. So I guess we've kind of like, there'll be a lot of like meta ethics that we could talk about here about, you know, are there like are there moral truths and what would be their nature that probably we shouldn't go into because neither of us are experts in that in that kind of philosophy. Because I never talk about things I'm not an expert in, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> well, there has to there have to be some limits, even even on me. Yeah, so I think I'm not, I guess, claiming that in actual practice, like it is true that you know our brains were produced uh, through evolution, so they're going to have kind of a, a mishmash of preferences. But at least for myself. I, because I think of my intuit, intuitive reactions to lots of these different scenarios as not as a like being faulty, basically, that I'm going to have lots of different conflicting intuitions about lots of different cases and no uh, one intuition about a hypothetical scenario is, kind of, is definitive and like definitely indicates what's right in that situation. I want to produce a simpler model of my preferences, a simpler model of, of what I care about. And rather, rather than try to say, well, I care about, you know, welfare, or like well-being and happiness, but also I care about not being deceptive and I also care about like not having delusional beliefs, try to simplify it down from that and see like, what's the common thread, the, the thing that like the base handful of things that I uh, care about that can explain lots of these different cases, like they can explain my intuitions 95% of the time. And maybe, maybe they miss a couple of edge cases, a couple of peculiar hypothetical cases. But with a simple model, I can explain uh, most of it rather than I guess the statistical term that would be familiar with is overfitting, trying to like assuming that you're data is so reliable that you have to fit like every possible hypothetical and, and every edge case, and therefore building a very complicated model of your values that I suspect actually isn't as reliable in terms of predicting what you fundamentally you want in future cases. But there's kind of an interesting question here, like what is the nature of someone's values? Like, can they be mistaken about what they value in a specific case? Or is that kind of ground truth about someone's uh, preferences? I absolutely think that you can you can be mistaken because just because the thought experiments can be tricky to do and and you can have conflicting feelings and you have to kind of like work through them to resolve them. But but regarding what you said, I would argue that your values tend to be quite accurately predicted by sort of like what creates happiness, what reduces suffering, and so you can mm. kind of apply Occam's razor yourself and mm. try to avoid overfitting. But I don't think that that's true broadly of people. Like, I don't think that most people's values are that well approximated by just like what creates happiness. And just to give an example, you think about religious values. There's so many religious values around purity. Like, you know, you don't do this thing because it's unclean or don't do this thing because, you know, God looks down on it or, you know, according to my holy book. And there's so many like rich, you know, cleansing rituals and, you know, this thing should be avoided, but, but not because of really any happiness consequences in fact quite the opposite in some cases it's it's the purposeful denial of pleasure and and viewing mm. pleasure as being sinful 
Yeah, I think I think that's right. I reckon that most people I'm talking to, if they take on board what I'm saying and try to do this thing where they like simplify what the things that they think they value to like get to get most of the prediction with like far fewer factors, they're probably going to place more weight on well-being and and happiness than they did previously because they'll find that that's kind of the the common thread to lots of their intuitions about what is what is valuable. Like many things that they think are instrumentally valuable, sorry, that they think are terminally valuable actually like it's more easily explained or more, more parsimoniously explained by saying that, oh, you care about well-being and it's just, a, it's just a delusion because, or it's just a mistake because most of your experience is that these things are useful for getting, for getting well-being. But it's obviously not going to get you all of the way. If I wanted to try to persuade people to be uh, hedonists or full-throated philosophical hedonists, I would need a different bunch of arguments about moral philosophy or, and meta-ethics and so on. Yeah, and I don't know how familiar you are with like Sam Harris's you know, moral landscape, things like this. Mm. But one of the biggest problems I have with it is it seems to operate on the assumption that like what morality is about is like increasing well-being or reducing suffering. Mm. And, and while I think a lot of people I know that is what morality is about for them, mm. I just think if you like take a broad view and you actually like talk to lots and lots of humans, that's actually not a very good approximation of morality. And it's like actually about, it, it's part of what it's about, but it's about many more things beyond that. You know, and just, just to give a, a few examples, Loyalty. Like, I think people have an extremely strong sense of loyalty where it's like you should help someone even do a bad thing if, like, they have done sufficiently good things for you before, for example, or around punishment. Like, oh, that person did this bad thing. Therefore, they should be punished, even if there's absolutely no positive consequences. It's like mm. punishment is, is virtuous in itself and so on. You know, I make a list like probably 20 of these kind of things that seem to deviate from just thinking about what creates well being. Yeah, I, I haven't read the moral landscape, but I suspect that there's potentially some talking past going on here. Where I guess like Sam Harris, I think, is trying to make some claim that he thinks of as like more scientific or more like physics about like what is of value. He's not trying to describe what people's preferences are or what they call morality or what they think of as the moral thing to do. He's trying to say, he's trying to say, well, no, actually, morality is more like mathematics or more like science or something like that, where there are just true facts and these people are mistaken. What morality actually is is a focus on on well being. Well, I don't believe that either. <laughs> right? Yeah. No. No. I'm not sure why I disagree with him exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's that's the argument that you'd want to have is like look at how strong are the arguments that there is some objective sort of value and that people could be wrong about it and there are facts about what is good and and like maybe it's well being or maybe it's something else. But yeah, there's a rich philosophical tradition arguing both for it against that against that position. It's kind of yeah. It's inter- I guess philosophers are actually like fairly evenly split, or at least like normative philosophers, I think, are somewhat split on this question of what is the nature of morality or or, or, or ethics. I just wanted to, if if I kind of just wanted to wind back to the situation where you're imagining the case where you could benefit someone by lying to them or like deceiving mm-hmm. them in a really big way. I think imagine instead that the hypothetical is, and this is like even harder to imagine, and so maybe it's like even less reliable. But imagine a scenario where. It's the case that in general, lying makes people better off and improves their well-being and causes them to get other things that they want. And telling the truth is the thing that's harmful and destructive as a general rule. You're saying not just for the person lying, but like in general, when people lie, it benefits the whole world more. Yeah. Imagine that it's flipped. So like from where it is now, where basically the best, the good principle to follow is to almost always tell the truth, except in funny, funny exceptions. Imagine that somehow like the economy runs and physics runs in such a way that generally it's good to deceive people and that telling the truth is like typically the destructive thing to do. And so throughout your experience, you've learned that basically uh, you just want to lie almost always unless there's some like compelling reason to do otherwise. In that situation, do you think that uh, you should not deceive them, even though people have learned that that they should lie most of the time and that lying is is beneficial for people's well-being? For me, the intuition in that case is much stronger. It's like, well, no, like most of the people are lying. 
that seems to be working well. So you should lie in this case as well, because it's just another example of where lying raises people's well-being. I think that's a cool thought experiment. I like that. You know, <laughs> when I think about values, I think of them as like psychological facts. And I try mm. to separate the psychological fact from what someone believes about objective morality. So like you could have someone, for example, who who says, I am a pure utilitarian. I believe in objective moral truth. I think the only thing that matters morally is maximizing utility. But then separate from that, there are the psychological values that they have, the intrinsic values they have, which essentially are you know, the things that their brain assigns values to mm. value to. So it's like, if you think of the brain as having many different things it can do, like it can make predictions and so on. One thing it can do is it can consider a state of the world and it can say that's valuable or that's not valuable. And it can kind of assess how valuable it is. And so I, I believe that like, regardless of the, of the kind of moral philosophy stuff, we can still do this kind of introspection to like understand our own psychology better because some people are going to be much more averse to lying and like view it as kind of more fundamentally bad. Other people are going to maybe think certain purity concerns are really important. And in my view, this is a mix of sort of our genetics and our cultural upbringing. Like it seems pretty clear that we have this sort of built into us, this ability to have kind of moral disgust, but it also seems mm -hmm. pretty clear that this gets changed by our culture. For example, mm -hmm. In our culture, you know, cannibalism is considered absolutely disgusting, but there have been cultures that were cannibalistic, you know, so, so we, it's hard for us to imagine that anyone could not have moral disgust to that. But it seems like there were cultures that probably didn't have moral disgust to it. And you can think about almost any other case, you know, whether it's having sex with animals or having sex with children or whatever, like, mm. so it seems, it seems like we, you know, genetics give us the capability to have these kind of moral intuitions. And then we kind of get program culturally and they end up as psychological facts about us yeah yeah that seems right if you're trying to explain or to build a model of people and and, and predict their behavior then uh, that's probably the best way to do it because it seems like they're uh, you're familiar with and most listeners will be familiar with the kind of the moral foundations uh model jonathan hyatt jonathan hyatt yeah i think it's like there's five different kind of moral foundations or different principles that people have that they associate with morality that uh cut across cultures uh, to a pretty large degree and one of them is this kind of purity and disgust dimension. But it seems like what things people regard as impure and disgusting versus like holy and sanctified, that is extremely culturally determined. In fact, almost completely culturally determined, with the exception perhaps of things that cause disease, where they're almost always regarded as, as impure and disgusting for obvious reasons. Yeah, like I think, I think things like cannibalism, we probably have a predilection to finding it disgusting more than other things mm. because it actually may spread disease. This is my suspicion, yeah. but it still seems like it's maybe potentially culturally overridable, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, are there that many uh, societies that engage in cannibalism? I suppose maybe you could, it, well, in, in an evolutionary environment where food is sufficiently scarce that it's more important to get the food from uh, eating people than it is to avoid the diseases that they'll pass to you. Maybe you could involve the intuition that cannibalism isn't especially bad. Yeah, I think I, I suspect that that's what happened. That there were times when basically, yeah, like the evolutionary drive, like, of, of, you know, eating overrode the like, you know, mm. disease fear and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I mean, they're rare, but you can definitely find them in the historical record. Yeah, I think, well, one thing is scarcity of food. So how important is it to get calories from any source that you can get them from? Another is there were some societies that had low population density and low levels of contact between people, uh, which meant that there were far fewer endemic diseases. So in that situation, it might be that eating people in practice doesn't cause you to get diseases all, all, that, all that often. And so that, that reduces the pressure to, to feel disgust about cannibalism. I think one of the best examples of the cultural programming of like our ethical intuitions is like the idea of eating dogs, which 
people in the mm. you know U.S. that are like it's like such an upsetting concept, and then their cultures were just like totally normal, and that you know they just wouldn't really think any, anything about it. Yeah, I mean, I think they're right about that one. It's the <laughs> it's the case of farm animals where people are getting it wrong. Uh, it's with it's with the case of a dog. Well, yeah, this actually brings me back to I was, I was going to say with hypothetical scenarios or like you know probing probing your values or just like your reactions to any other philosophical questions by using thought experiments. I think the more the situation is similar to something that you've experienced and involves like a normal number of things that humans naturally deal with, the more trustworthy I think of that scenario as being. And the more it requires you to imagine things that are impossible or have never happened or have never happened to you or like amounts of stuff that's beyond human conception, like, you know, millions of people or like extremely long periods of time. You know, I guess in some philosophical thought experiments, you get like infinities even, which I think is really is taking you too far, like beyond what intuition can can offer us. In those situations, I think you should place less weight on the intuitive responses that you have to those to those thought experiments, just because there's no particular reason to think that your intuitions are going to be especially well trained to produce even the answer that like on reflection, if you had a better mind and could fully understand the situation, the reaction, the reaction that you would give. But, but in another case where it's like, well, I have a pet, I have one pet. I actually do have a pet in real life, say, would it be okay for me to kill and eat my dog? That's a case where I think actually people probably have like better trained intuitions and maybe they would be closer to their, to the true values and their response that they have to that. Mm, yeah. So it's, it's always funny when you have these side experiments, you're like, there's absolutely no way a human can do that, that experiment. It's like, okay, imagine you're a slug, but also <laughs> you're omniscient and you're trying yeah. to make a decision for eternity. And it's just like, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just obvious why, like, your instinctive response to that is going to get polluted by all kinds of other factors that your brain like can't get rid of. Yeah, I guess we've been thinking about cases uh, earlier where you get this kind of cross-contamination where, I mean, well, at least I'm arguing that you do get cross-contamination where because you have this intuition that something is just valuable because it's proven valuable throughout your life, you, you, you can't imagine a scenario, can't like truly actualize a scenario where it's not useful. But I think that happens in lots of other cases as well. You can very often have debunking explanations for other intuitions that people have in philosophical thought experiments uh, just because of the associations that are that, that continue to taint them because the brain just isn't able to segment things perfectly and completely. Yeah, that being said, I would say I think we can learn about ourselves from thought experiments. So, so if you view them as like experiments on yourself, then your, your response to a thought experiment is like, should be teaching you a psychological fact, mm. even if the thought experiment is like very hard to do. And, and, you know, the amount of information you learn about yourself, you know, that's going to vary based on the thought experiment. Some of them are not going to be very informative, but hopefully others are like teach you more about the way you think about things, the way your own mind works. Yeah. Yeah. A rebuttal to my specific view, actually, Arden Kahlo, who's been on, on, on this show before, told me about is, philosophers point out that there's some things where people don't get this terminal versus instrumental value confusion. So for example, almost nobody, if you probe them with a thought experiment, thinks that money is terminally valuable, even though it's extremely instrumentally valuable. So like, why is that? that? That suggests the fact that almost nobody says that they value pieces of paper in themselves uh, suggests that maybe we can distinguish between cases uh, of terminal and instrumental value acceptably. Yeah, I can back that up because that was one of our quiz questions. And I'm, I'm pretty sure very few people actually yeah. said that, that they thought it was uh, terminally valuable. I think we also did one that was like a hammer and like almost nobody thought a hammer mm. <laughs> was uh, intrinsically valuable. So yeah, yeah, but then obviously there are a lot of weird edge cases that are a lot harder. By the mm. way, I just want to give you huge props for bringing up a counter argument to your view. That's, <laughs> I, I have tremendous respect for, for the fact that you did that. Yeah, well, I mean, so I don't have a like fully convincing uh, response to that. But I think one is that you notice like, so money is really kind of a stand-in for influence and power, like the ability to to create effects in the world by influencing what other people do. 
And I think if you ask people, you know, is power intrinsically valuable? Is like the ability to influence things intrinsically valuable? Then they'll often say yes. And it's just the fact that you're talking about like actual literal pieces of paper that makes it so clear. But if you go to the abstract concept again, it's like power, which is like maybe more equivalent to like beauty or knowledge. Then I think people do again make this intrinsic versus terminal value confusion. Yeah, it definitely seems like the the nature of the the case can make it much more difficult to reason about carefully. And yeah, maybe money maybe money and hammers are easier than others. <laughs> so let's switch topics again. I want to talk to you about research ethics, which I think you have some pretty strongly expressed feelings about. So I'm curious to curious to hear about that. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've had have used in this for a number of years, but something that's got me thinking about it a lot this year is this question of whether we should do human challenge trials in order to test vaccines for, for COVID-19. So yeah, uh, listeners may or may not know, but the vaccines that have currently been developed, I guess is Moderna and, and, and Pfizer, they actually produced uh, these vaccines for the first time back in January, or they basically, as soon as they managed to get the DNA transcript of the COVID-19 virus, they had done previous work to try to figure out, well, how would you go from the transcript to the, to the vaccine candidate? And so they were able to basically immediately produce a vaccine candidate. And so everything since then, since like mid-January, has in a sense been us going through like various different processes to figure out if these vaccine candidates are safe and whether they work. But just to be fair, there is a scale-up issue too, no? Sorry. That's, yeah, that's absolutely true. So yeah, that, that would be like, I think, a good response to the, the criticisms that, that I'm about to make. Uh, and I'm not an expert in like medicine and all these other things. Uh, this is just based on what I've read and I could well be getting things wrong. But I think you can imagine that there's like something in this direction that, that might be right. So we pretend, I think we could have sped up and did, definitely we, we could have sped up the discovery that these vaccines are effective by quite a lot of time if instead of waiting or vaccinating a whole bunch of people and then sending them out into the population uh, and waiting to find out whether they got COVID or whether they didn't and seeing if there's a difference between the people who got the vaccine and got the control group. Instead, we gave uh, someone the vaccine, waited three weeks, and then actually just infected them with COVID-19 and then saw whether, and saw whether they got sick. We could do that with, you know, 100 people. With their permission, obviously. With their permission, obviously, consent. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so this idea came up very early on. They're called human challenge trials. They are regarded as ethical and they are done in cases where you can cure an illness. So you could potentially, you know, give someone chlamydia hypothetically and then just give them a pill that cures chlamydia and that's that's regarded as okay. Now, for about 6 months there was this ongoing debate about whether it would be morally acceptable to do uh, a human challenge trial uh, to test these vaccines. Like basically there is some risk created. Obviously you would do a human challenge trial like this with people who were already very healthy, ideally probably, you know, young people, people who have like a very low risk of of dying of COVID-19, potentially as low as 1 in 10,000. But they would still have to get sick uh, and they would still be unwell, even though they would get the, the best treatment available. And there is the possibility that, that, that someone might die. And there was like, a, lot of, a lot of discussion about, like, could this be ethical in this case where we don't yet have a cure for COVID-19? And I kind of think it's mad. <laughs> so over the last year, we've had several million people die of COVID-19. We could probably get a pretty good signal about whether these vaccines work very quickly, like within a month, by testing you know, maybe 100 people with, with, with each of these vaccine candidates. It would speed up potentially the discovery of which vaccines are effective by three or four months. And probably no one would die uh, because you would do it on healthy people who are young enough, who have an extremely low risk of, of, of dying in the first place. And in return, in the mid, like the, the fact that you could figure out which vaccine candidates are effective a few months sooner and then focus monomaniacally on increasing, on scaling up the manufacture of those vaccines 
Right. If you don't have the, if you don't have the trials done yet, it's like hard to even go full yeah. throttle into scaling because it's such a risk, right? Right. So they have been doing a whole bunch of work uh, that they, they predicted in January. Yeah, we think this vaccine is going to be safe and we think it's going to work. They were like, they were pretty confident about that as early as like mid-January. And because of that, they have already been doing a lot of work to try to scale up the, the manufacturing capacity, which is going to ultimately be the, be the bottleneck. But I think it would have been like, there's more that we could have done if we had known exactly which vaccines were effective in April, rather than announcing that in uh, November. That, that would have bought us a lot of time and potentially a lot of focus. Because I mean, to begin with, we've been also producing, I think, a vaccine manufacturing capacity for other vaccines where we don't yet know whether they work. And so that's potentially kind of a wasted effort. Now, <laughs> just to, to bring this back, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of conservatism within research ethics, within bioethics. There's a lot of conservatism among institutional review boards, which oversee basically all kinds of studies that are conducted in any institution that receives U.S. government funding. And indeed, uh, there's like similar, the similar organizations that operate in universities and research labs overseas. There's a lot of conservatism uh, in regulators like the, the FDA that decide which drugs get approved and which ones people can take. And I think there's kind of a common thread here where the incentives are fairly misaligned, where all of these groups will get blamed and potentially condemned if something goes wrong, but they don't face that much blame if uh, they prevent something from happening that would have been really good, because that's a lot less obvious. And they don't get upside if it goes really well, right? It's like they're right. not going to get part of the money from the you know, vaccine rolling out or something like that. Right. So, you know, the bioethicists, the philosophers, the people on the ethics review boards that initially were not in favor of doing a human challenge trial, the, the Food and Drug Administration in the US, all of these organizations that, in my view, have kind of been slowing things down and making it more difficult in many ways to, to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic, if they had done a better job by my lights, if they had saved hundreds of thousands or millions of lives by doing a better job, those people would personally be no better off. Their careers would be no better. They would receive no reward. And they would run the risk of public condemnation if, say, someone died in one of these trials and then they, and people said it was extremely unethical that they had, that they had been conducted. So it's something that I've been reflecting on a, on a bunch recently is this like misalignment between the incentives of people forming policy, people making decisions about what things are permissible and what things aren't permissible and, and the public interest, especially, especially regarding COVID. We can, we can talk more about like specific instances where I think things are going wrong, if you like. Well, it's, it's interesting to think about whenever you create a group that's job is like, you know, prevent this kind of risk or prevent, you know, prevent this kind right. of problem. It's going to sort of be over-focused on that side of the problem rather than say the flip side, the benefits from not preventing something. And, and, you know, I think the kind of steel man argument is like, well, you need one group on one side that's trying to do the thing. And the other group is trying to monitor doing the thing and make sure it's safe. And then like, hopefully together that leads to a good outcome. It's like, you know, you have companies trying to make money and then you have politicians regulating them to make sure they don't cause harm. But in practice, if, if there's an imbalance, if one side gets like too powerful, then it's sort of a design, it's optimization loop is just like prevent harm. And then now you, instead of, uh, making kind of the rational choice of like weighing benefits and risks, you end up like over preventing harm, but that actually creates all these unintended bad consequences. They're worse uh, than the things prevented. Yeah. One reason I've been thinking about this is I'm preparing to interview someone called Carl Schneider, who wrote this book called The Sensor's Hand, The Misregulation of Human Subject uh, Research. In that book, he describes how institutional review boards, which are these kind of yeah, ethics, ethics review boards function functionally, although they don't actually interestingly usually have philosophers or ethicists on them, they're usually just kind of bureaucrats. They are phenomenally powerful. These organizations within a university, they can block research for kind of any reason. 
uh, that they where they feel it's not appropriate or that the research isn't good for like anyone, there's not really any ability to appeal. And they intimidate in practice the researchers. If if you're someone who speaks out against them and says this is bad and goes to the press uh, and says, I'm being censored, say, or like my project will be good for society, uh, I should be allowed to do it. Uh, in practice, people are too scared to do that because these institutional review boards are so unaccountable and so powerful in being able to just completely block people's work uh, that it's just too dangerous for anyone in their individual career to speak up against them. Uh, and it's a really big problem. In fact, so this, uh, this author is a lawyer and he argues that the way that they're set up already violates the First Amendment because they're operating as government censors, like putting in, pl- in practice government regulations that are preventing people from exploring ideas or talking about ideas and, and basically effectively censoring them without the legal protections that are required under, under the First Amendment to, uh, to protect freedom of expression and freedom of thought. Now, I, I mean, I have no view about the legal issue there, but the, but the practical issue that they, could, they can potentially be doing a lot of harm without anyone having the ability to, to push back and explain to the public just how extraordinarily costly these very often very dubious like ethical concerns are being is, I think, very correct. Yeah, for anyone who wants a firsthand account of this, on, on uh, Slate Star Codex, the blog, there's a account of him attempting to run a study at his hospital and just sort of all the things that go disastrously wrong. Basically, he's sort of blocked at every turn from actually running the study. The Slate Star Codex article I've been referring to is called My IRB Nightmare. Definitely worth reading. And just yeah. add a, in personal experience, there's one of our products that we really wanted to run a randomized control trial on to, to just kind of measure efficacy. And we ended up finding in three different cases, I believe it was, two or three cases, we ended up finding academics that were excited to work with us and to do a project with us, like within a hospital system or within a medical t- context to try to test our product. And in all of those cases, basically it got bogged down in the IRB. And it wasn't even that the IRB rejected it. It wasn't like they were like, oh yeah, you can't do the study. I mean, then at least we would have been like, okay, we're going to, you know, we're not going to do it. Instead, it was just sort of got increasingly complicated and time consuming and difficult. And in every case, it just kind of no longer became worth it. The academics were like, ah, this is going to take forever, or, you know. And so basically, we just didn't do those studies. It was, it was just incredibly frustrating because, yeah. from our view, clearly it would be beneficial to have, have been able to conduct that research. So, and you actually pointed, I think it was on Facebook, to a, a really mm. fascinating example of this. Do you want to give mm. this example? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I've had the experience of watching people who are trying to do really important academic research. This, I mean, both in the past, but also this year, like under emergency circumstances, like very important research about COVID-19 during the height of the pandemic. And these, these ethical review boards were just like doing their thing, slowing stuff down by weeks, months over like the most dubious uh, procedural issues. They, and, they, and they weren't really significantly modifying their position, despite the fact that thousands of people were dying uh, in the relevant countries every day of this problem, that, that they'd just been so bureaucratized that there was no flexibility to think, well, actually, the benefits of this research is now it's like so big because so many people are dying that maybe we should, like, maybe we should try to speed this up and like, not worry about these second-tier issues. Now, yeah, the, the, the case that I posted on Facebook, I mean, if you ask any researchers, if, I think if, like, almost anyone at universities, they'll have horror stories about these ethical review boards or institutional review boards. The one here was someone was trying to study. They, they wanted to get, I think, recruitment material from Al-Qaeda and show it to a bunch of young men, I think, either in the UK or the United States, and just see how do they react to that? Like, what do they say in response to the messages that Al-Qaeda is pushing? Do they have any sympathy with any part of it? Or do they think that it's terrible? Like, and maybe then try to suss out, like, what would be the strongest messages for Al-Qaeda with the, with the interest of thinking, well, how would we counteract those potentially powerful messages 
anticipating ahead of time ways that Al-Qaeda might try to recruit people in the United States or the UK to, to, to do their bidding. Now, you might think that the ethical concern that an IRB would have about this would be that by showing them this recruitment material from Al-Qaeda, someone might actually start to develop sympathies with this and, and might potentially become a terrorist themselves. But that issue apparently was just never raised. The concern that they had was that Wait, wait, why, why don't we have people try to guess with it? Just think okay. for a second. See if you can guess it in your mind. What, what do you think the objection they had was? Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> Go ahead, <Rob>. <laughs> <laughs> a second. Yeah. So the concern that they had was that by showing or telling anyone that Al-Qaeda, this terrorist organization, uh, believes that Islamic doctrine supports their activities, that it could cause the participants to form negative views uh, about Muslims in general, that they could become prejudiced against Muslims because of exposure to these messages from, from Al-Qaeda. I think it would be reasonable for the, for the review board to say, you should really point out in the materials that you're showing people that the great majority of Muslims and the great majority of people who study the Quran or, or of experts in this area disagree with Al-Qaeda's interpretation. This is like a very niche and peculiar view that they have rather than a mainstream one. But to sh- basically, I mean, the study didn't happen. This person wanted to do the study, but it, it, just, like, it just became too difficult. They, they couldn't really get approval to do it within a reasonable amount of time and an acceptable cost. So, so it never went ahead. And I think... <sighs> The common sense says people know about Al-Qaeda. They know that there are Islamic terrorist groups out there. They're reading about it in the newspaper all the time, right? Always. People talk about it with their friends. They know that Islamic terrorism exists. Like participating in a study where you read some of these materials is really a drop in the bucket. Like, in fact, having the opportunity to think about this for, for a little bit and potentially get some like countervailing messages or like potentially you know, getting, getting some balance, like understanding the debate might well make people form a more positive view of, of Muslims. Uh, rather than just having a reflexive negative view because you know, all that they know about the religion basically is like what they see on the news when there are terrorist attacks. I think another, another issue here is that if you and I, Spencer, just had a conversation where you said, you know, actually, I don't, Al-Qaeda, I don't, actually almost know nothing about them. I said, oh, well, they, they believe that the correct interpretation of Islamic scripture supports their view that, you, that it's okay to like kill people in these terrorist attacks, that it's in fact like uh, good to do so. Uh, for like X, Y, and Z reason. You know, I don't know exactly what, what the reasons are. People wouldn't say this is an important like ethical thing event that has just occurred where I should have to go and get permission from a government bureaucrat before we can have this conversation because possibly your discovery of like the basic facts that you'll find at the top of a Wikipedia page about Al-Qaeda could, f- could for- cause you to form a negative opinion about someone or some group. We're allowed to do things in our ordinary life, like get jobs, quit jobs, have relationships with people, you know, go on a holiday that have some risk that things might go badly, but they're not regarded as like really weighty moral issues where I should have to go and get permission before I can take that risk. But as soon as something is viewed as research, it comes under this umbrella where effectively there's this like government monopoly that can, that regards everything as an incredibly important and difficult and challenging ethical and institutional concern where you have to, before you can do any of it, you've got to get a panel of experts to sign off on it. If we apply this to the rest of society, we would literally all starve because like nothing could function uh, with this level of oversight and prior restraint on people's activities. Now, I guess now we should probably back up and, like, and defend it a little bit because I've been laying into it here. Yeah, yeah. I want to I hear you know, what you see as the, the strongest arguments in favor of, you know, kind of this extra caution. Obviously, there were some incredibly unethical yeah. experiments that were conducted. And I think that partly these IRBs are a reaction to these really, really genuinely horrible things that happen and you know, trying to make sure that doesn't happen again. So, so that's something worth 
pointing out. But but I also just want to mention, so uh, we build this tool called Positly for helping you quickly recruit people for studies online. So let's say you want to do a study on people with sleep problems and you want to recruit 100 people and split them into two groups and track them to understand how their sleep problems progress or something like that. And we were thinking about how can we build ethics into the tool? And so what we ended up doing is making it so that every study participant at the end of participation, they're asked about a, a series of questions about like, do you think this was unethical? You know, was it a frustrating experiment for you? A bunch of questions like that. And they can tick any of them that they agree with. And then if they say that any of them apply, they're asked, can you, would you explain why? Like, what, what did you feel was unethical about this? And then they're actually given the option to pause the study. And if more than a few of them say, yes, the study should be paused, it just automatically stopped and the researcher's mm-hmm. forced to deal with it. And so obviously it's not the same as the IRB approval. But the other thing about it is it's like actually getting information from the real study participants. They're all giving input and they have the ability to stop it and force the researcher to kind of make changes to it. And so that's our little contribution to this sort of mm-hmm. like this automated ethics review by the people who are actually involved. Now, of course, that doesn't yeah. solve all issues. You know, if you were giving people dangerous medicine that, you know, that wouldn't necessarily uh, be a good approach, but for like, you know, low risk online, you know, digital things, I think it, it adds value. Yeah. I mean, that's just a vastly more sensible procedure than what you would get in most other areas. Or like if you had to go through one of these IRBs within social science. Now, a lot of the craziest examples come in like a non-medical context where you are just like having a conversation with people. You're basically running a focus group and showing them some materials and hearing what people's thoughts are about that. Or like, just like survey someone on like, how is your relationship going? And like, how do you think about your relationship? These go through these like very difficult and painful and time-consuming processes, even though they're just surveys and they're just they're conversations or like extraction of information that we do all the time to one another and do not regard as important moral decisions. Within medicine, it's obviously a, 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 different, a different question. I'll, like, it is possible to do people severe harm by, in, in, in medical experiments by you know, giving them a drug that would cause a terrible reaction or would, would make other diseases worse or, or whatever else. So obviously, you want to have oversight and like gradually stage, especially like stage giving people new treatments so that if, it, if they are really bad, you find that out and can stop the experiment soon before many people get a harmful treatment. And there's other ethical issues as well, I guess. Yeah, there's all these historical cases where researchers did just horrific things, usually quite some some time ago now. And that created the motivation to create all these ethical review boards. The thing that's perhaps funny about that is that those the things that they were doing were already illegal in almost all cases. They were already crimes. Oh, really? I didn't know that. They were breaking the law. And so it's funny that rather than just say, well, this is already a crime, we should enforce the law on these people. But get a bit, get better enforcement, basically. Get better enforcement. Instead, we've created this new structure. Now, you can think about a similar thing. It's like a lot of harm has been done by promoting, say, propaganda on radio or on television. One response to that might be, well, you should have to go and get approval from someone before you can say anything on radio. Before we can produce this podcast, we have to like consider how could we do harm by saying something was wrong? Or I'm pretty sure this podcast would not have been allowed to happen, Rob. <laughs> I think not, <laughs> given, given this message, which is like actually exactly the issue that you can create a like self-perpetuating uh, uh, cycle where no one is willing to challenge something. But yeah, there's like lots of ways, there's lots of things that can cause some harm where uh, someone could commit a crime and do a lot of damage. But usually we just think you should enforce the normal law rather than create an entirely new process just to regulate that subset of behavior. And especially where someone has to get approval before they can take any action very often will allow people to seek redress if harm is caused after the fact. And because they can be punished afterwards, uh, that dissuades them from doing it in the first place. 
Right. So if, if 95% of the time harm has been caused, you could see why you'd want to take extreme yeah. precautions and, and on the front end, try to prevent it. But if it's like actually incredibly rare, then you'd say, well, in the very rare, if you try to like force everyone to go through a review process, you know, you know, 10,000 studies have to go through a review process where really only like one of them would have caused significant harm. Then maybe you just want to change incentives and say, if you do do a lot of harm, you're going to get caught. And also you're going to have to pay through the teeth to kind of make it up. Yeah. So I've slightly like modeled my message here because it, like the human challenge trials, they are like on the edge of like what like could be plausibly morally acceptable. There really is a significant risk of harm to the participants. And clearly this needs to be very carefully thought through. And you have to get, you're going to have to get very thorough consent from the participants, like have, make sure that they really understand what they're getting into and the fact that there is a material risk of harm here. In my view, we should allow them to do that once they've, once they've understood the risks. The same way that we allowed, you know, medical staff to continue going to hospital and treating people, even when they ran out of personal protective equipment, they were willing to be heroes. They were willing to take some risk on themselves to, to suffer some harm potentially in order to save the lives of others. And I think people should be allowed to do that within a research context as well, to, to take on the, the, the risk of like physical damage in order to save what in practice could have been hundreds of thousands of lives. We allow bravery, we allow courage, we allow self-sacrifice in other domains, and we should allow it. We allow people to even ride, ride motorcycles too fast. It's like, <laughs> right. it's like yeah. under the speed yeah. limit. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. That is interesting that we allow people to take risk in some domains for like almost no reason, but, but, but here we're not. Just another thing is the value of doing these human challenge trials to society, I think would have been in the hundreds of billions or like globally in the hundreds of billions, possibly trillions. We could afford to make everyone who goes through this a millionaire and still come out far ahead. And I would, you know, I, I'm working hard to avoid getting COVID now. But if someone said I'd pay you a million dollars, I would be happy to get COVID. And then it's a win-win almost always because, you know, I, I would rather have the money even at the cost of getting, getting sick for a few weeks. But, you know, but then you'd be coerced into doing it by the payment, Rob. Yeah. So this is one of the maddest theories that has come out of research ethics is the idea that if you pay someone too much, then the payment is coercive. I mean, I think this is, this doesn't make any sense. Like the whole way that we make society function in every other domain is that if we need someone to do something uh, that's unpleasant for them, but good for the world, then we pay them. Like that's why many people show up to work doing things that are like dangerous or unpleasant or that they would rather be doing something else. And we give them a salary. Like these people who are serving on these institutional review boards, they presumably would rather be doing something else than ethical paperwork. But they're getting a salary and uh, been providing a service hypothetically to society. Someone should warn them about all the risks of of becoming yeah. uh, joining the medical review board. You know, well, it, it did. Yeah, maybe they're being coerced into being on the review board because they're earning a salary, and the salary is so high that there's just they could, didn't feel like they could say no. I mean, I think the idea is pretty crazy. Maybe like maybe there's some edge cases where it work where like if someone is if the only way that someone would accept a deal is if they're like if they're not sound of mind they're actually crazy then maybe that's a case where it's ethically dubious. Yeah, or someone you someone's like you know extremely addicted to drugs and like they're just yeah. trying to find their next fix and you're like here's a thousand dollars. You know, I, from yeah. from my point of view, the kind of two critical issues I see are one that people truly have informed consent that they really understand what they're getting into, and second. That if you're doing research that actually has significant risks, that there really is a good enough justification of benefit on the other side, like which there clearly, you know, potentially is in the COVID case. I think, you know, some people say challenge trials wouldn't have helped much, but insofar as they would have helped, like obviously it would be worth it, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's one thing that where, where research ethics, I think, uh, really does go wrong is that in order to ensure that they are not able to justify doing something really bad because, say, the effect of the research would be really positive. 
they have kind of forbidden themselves from thinking about the broader social consequences of the research. So the fact that conducting some study would save many lives is, I think, to these review boards, like not really here nor there. They think about the participants in the research only and not about the broader social consequences of like how valuable would this research be to do. Now, I think there is something to be said for that because we don't, I don't think that we should and I don't think that we need to violate people's rights or consent or well-being in order to get important uh, research done. We should just have absolute lines in the sand where we're going to say, well, we're not going to like just like get someone and like give them a disease without the consent. That's just crazy. But the fortunate thing is that because we can just pay people to do things that are unpleasant and leave them better off because the money is more important than like the, the bad thing that happened to them in the research, we can do kind of any research that we want that would be really beneficial to society. And if it's really beneficial to society in a big way, then we should be willing to pay for it. And so we can get participants who are fully informed, who are completely sane, who are willing to uh, do, like say, go through an experiment or yeah, get COVID-19 for $10,000. So one, one litmus test I think would be, do, do the researchers think that the participants are making a mistake to participate? Now, I think getting paid 10000 if you're a healthy 20-year-old, getting paid $10,000 to get COVID-19 is potentially very sensible. I, I don't see any reason why someone would have to be crazy to do that. I mean, people go and get COVID-19 just because they kind of, or like run a significant risk of that just because they want to go to a party or something. Well, especially if they're doing it for the good of society, right? Especially if they're doing it, yeah. So- I mean, even somebody who's completely selfish might just want to do it for the money. But then when you add in the, the extra motivation of wanting to save lots of lives, it just makes com- complete sense. And, and it's, a, it's another way in which I think these review boards and these regulators can be immoral is that they deny autonomy or they don't care that much about the autonomy of the participants. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what would a, a steel man argument in favor of the kind of current approach to research ethics be? Right. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've really launched into the kind of the, the case for the prosecution here, laying out all of the reasons that I'm very concerned about the way that research ethics is, is applied. And, and I think that there's a case to be made for, like, for being very direct about things like that, especially when you're kind of introducing the case for something that people, like many people just won't have heard uh, that this is a concern before. And you really want to like lay out why they should take an interest in, in the first place. But I mean, there are smart people who design the system and there are smart people who, who defend it. And of course, it's a, it's a bunch more complicated and as I was saying earlier about like the, how important it is to understand people's perspectives in, in full, there's going to be a whole lot of defenses and there'll be responses to that and responses to that. I guess, yeah, what are the arguments that I might uh, find most compelling? I guess the, the most common one that you'll hear, the, the first one you'll hear is one that I mentioned that people think that human subject research is kind of uniquely prone to abuse or to mistreatment of people. And that, that's, what, that's the one that I kind of don't find that compelling. Because I think if you look at many areas of life and you look back at like how they how, how they existed in the past, like, you know, marriage, institutions, take care of children, uh, prison, mass media, you know, religion and churches and the military. In all of these areas, you find that there's, uh, there was just a lot of abuse and terrible behavior and mistreatment of people in the past. But, in, but generally, we've found less invasive ways to, to manage that and, and reduce that risk. And I think similarly with, with human subject research, we could find less invasive ways than the current ones to, to, to eliminate abuse or, or keep it at like uh, extremely low levels. Mm-hmm. But other ones that might be more compelling, let's see. I guess one defense you get is that, so if you're a university and you're running human subject research, you've got a whole portfolio of projects. You've got lots of researchers, lots of things going on. And any scandal about any single project, like any mistreatment of someone or someone who goes through a research project and then kind of regrets being a part of it, you know, even if they were paid uh, handsomely for, for doing it, that could potentially bring down the whole enterprise because a single scandal doesn't just damage that research project, but can potentially uh, ruin the reputation of the entire institution. I think there's, there's a serious uh, issue there, though I wish that we could find some other 
less invasive way of, of limiting that reputational risk. I guess another one might be just that there's a slippery slope here that say if we allow the importance of a piece of human subject research to enter into the equation, then that could potentially over time, you know, really reduce, gradually reduce standards uh, of, of care for, for the subjects of, of, of research into, into people. And that eventually things could like, even if on the margin, you know, the, the, the changes that I would endorse aren't bad right now, that, that then opens the door for things to get gradually worse over time. I guess that's, that's a concern. And then maybe, maybe also if we like, if we open the door for researchers to convince people to participate by paying them or by convincing them that the research is really important, then maybe that would create a temptation for researchers to kind of prey on people who are misinformed or just generally foolish. And perhaps those people would disproportionately end up being involved in experiments that are, are unpleasant for, for, the, for the participants. And perhaps that could become a systemic issue where researchers attempted to try to uh, attract those people in order to get participants in research that otherwise couldn't, couldn't continue. So, th- so there are a bunch of le- legitimate concerns that people have. I, I, I just really do think that if we thought about this uh, carefully and we, put a lot of, we really put our minds to it, we could find a less overbearing system of ethical review that could keep these problems in check and that we could, you know, move, move a couple of steps in the direction of loosening it without going all the way towards a system that would be uh, really, really harmful uh, and dangerous and reckless in the way that, that human subject research was many, many, many years ago. Mm. Well, it certainly seems like people are so good at rationalizing that it is hard to trust the researchers themselves to make like the right judgment about risks. You know, it's just, we just have you know, so many examples of this where you know, we humans think we're doing something that's totally fine. And it's just because we've kind of made some argument about why it's acceptable. I yeah. mean, you think about so many topics where even today, you know, it's like whether it's the treatment of animals or, you know, the way the companies might do things that are extremely polluting and like justify it themselves, or even like the way that you have, you know, tech companies that seem to pretty clearly be doing something bad, still selling themselves as like, and to their, you know, they're telling the story of their, their employees about how they're trying to save the world and so on. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I think w- we can somewhat draw a distinction here between research that on its face, there's a clear risk to participants, like where you're doing experimental medical treatments on people and giving, giving them drugs that haven't been tested on many people before, where it's just very clear that we're going to need external oversight. We're going to need people to be reviewing whether these experiments are, are justified and whether participants are getting sufficient protection with very different kinds of research where, say, social scientists are just surveying people on you know, how satisfied they are with their relationships, say. And then, you know, seeing what things correlate with that, where on the face of it, it doesn't seem like there's the potential for, for that great harm, where potentially you could have a much lighter touch uh, review system. And I don't know the details, but I understand that over the last 10 years, uh, there have been quite a lot of reforms in the United States to try to loosen up the, uh, the, the scrutiny and the, and the overhead that's generated in, in fairly non-invasive and non, non-harmful social science work. So th- there are a lot of people who have been concerned about this for a while, and, and there is some move to, to change it, though. Uh, I think there's, a, there's still a decent way to go, at least with, uh, with the kind of research where it's not obvious how you're going to do substantial damage to people or how they're going to be tricked into engaging in something that, they, that they're not willing to or that they, that they wouldn't if they were properly informed. Yeah, I was going to say, I've seen this as a bright spot where I, I now some people I know who conduct academic research and social sciences are able to get sort of a blanket approval for certain types of studies. Like, oh, if I'm just surveying people and just asking them questions and they aren't like about traumatic topics or something like this the IRB will be like, okay, we'll just approve all of your studies that are of this type and or give you some kind of like faster review process. So that seems like a really uh, positive trend. And in general, it feels like there should just be these different tiers where the, there could be like five tiers of risk level. And it's like you're in level one, you don't even need to ask any permission. If you're in level two, you have to get just like a very brief review, et cetera. You know, that, I think that would, that would be ideal. 
Yeah, that 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 is a real uh, bright spot. I, I maybe just want to return for a minute to, to something that perhaps we haven't elaborated on, which is, I think, why this really worries both of us, which is that adding this kind of substantial overhead, this, these potentially very large costs to, to even get uh, any kind of social science or medical research off the ground could really be discouraging people from pursuing important research that could benefit people. And maybe even they, they just don't consider doing particular things because they know that it's going to be such a pain uh, to get it off the, the ground and to, and to get approval from all of the different committees that they'll need to consult, uh, that it just isn't worth even thinking about. And, it, and when you have that kind of overhead, and you, you'll say like doubling the administrative burden involved in doing all medical or social science research, that really could be substantial, like materially reducing the amount of knowledge that humanity is producing, that, that, that academia is able to produce with all of the smart people that they, that they have working in there. And it could also really distort the kinds of subjects that people decide to work on towards things that are less useful, but involve less administrative overhead and, and are easy to get through these committees. I guess some, some researchers have tried to look into this and try to weigh up, you know, for example, with, with the drug part, uh, part of the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, they try to evaluate, you know, how many lives have been saved by preventing harmful drugs from getting out onto the market and people using them and having side effects that they wouldn't have, uh, have wanted if they'd known what they were getting into, versus uh, how much harm has been done by slowing down medical research and requiring many more experiments and many more resources to going into confirming that things are really as safe as we think and potentially delaying the introduction of drugs by many years because they're going through many different uh, levels of review more, more than they would have uh, otherwise under, under previous legislation. And many, many of the researchers, I guess, especially economists who've looked into this, tend to conclude that on balance, they think that changes in how drugs are regulated in the United States in the 60s and 70s on balance have resulted in more deaths. So more people have died because of the slowing of the release of new treatments than have been saved by preventing drugs from going out onto the market that they shouldn't have. But I mean, this is obviously an incredibly difficult topic to study, and there's not really a very easy way to measure this kind of ever accumulating cost year after year, our research is like a bit slower and we're falling a bit behind where we might have been if we had managed to, to reduce this, uh, this overhead to, to doing useful research. So, so every year we're, we're somewhat falling behind this counterfactual world where, where we had managed to reduce this cost, but we don't know by how much because it's just this, this counterfactual world that we don't get to see. And so to some extent that the costs of all of this protection that we're putting in place, it's, it's like a, a, a dog that didn't bark. It's all this innovation that we don't have that we, that we never even really think about because it's not there to see. It's not something that we realize that we could have had in this, in this alternative world. And, and that makes it hard for, for anyone, uh, including me, to, to, to really tell uh, what level of control uh, and what level of uh, regulation and oversight is, is in fact justified because the, the, the costs as, as well as the benefits are, are extremely hard to measure. You know, when I think about what would I ideally want the FDA to do, I, I, have, I have tentative beliefs about this. I'd want to think about it a lot more if I actually had the power to decide it. But tentatively, it seems like a really good system would be one where things are labeled extremely clearly and also where reporting standards are really good. So for example, imagine you go to the drugstore and there's like a drug available that's not FDA approved. You know, so the current procedures just like don't allow you to buy it, right? Don't, don't even allow, in, yeah. in many cases, I think don't even allow a doctor to prescribe it if it's never been FDA approved for anything. But I think I prefer a system where you could buy it, but it was like, extremely clear. Like, there's no way you can miss the fact that it's just not FDA approved. And also, if there was some standardized like phone number and website where if you, if you tried it and you had any kind of adverse event, you were like strongly encouraged, like, okay, call this number if you have any adverse event on this. And so there's just extremely good tracking on like any bad things that are happening to people from mm. this stuff. What's your thought on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a way that we could potentially get the best of both worlds is that 
if you're someone who is generally, say, conservative about the medical treatments that you want to seek, and you and you only want to take treatments that you think have been demonstrated to a very high standard of evidence to uh, be to be better than taking nothing, then you can wait for the FDA to certify that uh, a medicine is approved by them. They think it's safe, and they think that uh, it probably works, or, or at least it's a positive expected uh, value for a patient uh, in their view. But if you're someone who is willing to take more risk and maybe thinks that the FDA by nature is too conservative in what uh, treatments they're willing to approve, then you can go out and buy the uncertified drugs or, or receive uncertified treatments. And say the producers of that uh, before, before it gets FDA certification just have to put an extremely bright red label on it saying the FDA has not certified that this treatment works and the FDA has not certified that this treatment is safe. And then people can choose, uh, they kind of get to decide uh, where they stand on this issue for themselves and get to have autonomy over the kinds of treatments that they're willing to accept in the, the level of risk reward that they're, that they're willing to tolerate. And I think there's above and beyond the consequentialist arguments that we've been talking about here, I think there's also a kind of human rights or autonomy argument that all else equal, we should leave people to, to, to decide what, what medical treatments they want to receive uh, in their own life to, to make their own judgments about that. And I, I mean, in my view, I think Medical treatment should really only be banned, banned by, say, the federal government, preventing people from receiving something, even if they're informed and, 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 and willing to opt in and accept the risk. But that should, things should only be banned in, in, in extreme cases where really the regulators think that uh, you'd, you'd be crazy to, to take this thing, that only someone who was misinformed and not of sound mind would opt to receive this, this treatment. If someone is of sound mind and they're just, say, willing to take greater risks with their health in order to get uh, potential rewards, or, or maybe they just uh, are interested to be part of medical progress and willing to try out treatments in order to generate knowledge about what works and what doesn't. I think by, like, as long as someone is, is sane and informed, then the FDA should mostly stand back and just its role should be an advisory one, advising patients on what treatments they think have been proven to be safe and proven to be effective. I, I would just add to that, though. I think the reporting part like where you capture information is super critical as well like you because mm. you don't want a situation like there have been real situations in history where a drug goes to market and it actually is just truly mm. terrible like you know for example it's causing horrible birth defects and people don't realize it right away and so it seems like you really need that mechanism mm. and that's why i was encouraging like you know just every bottle has to have a phone number right to the fda where you can just report something bad and then that could create a feedback loop where if you're just getting a ton of reports like that the fda could like either actually temporarily ban it or permanently ban it in extreme cases, or maybe just force an even bigger label that's like, here are all these adverse events we're getting reported on this. Because without that, I, you know, I mean, there is a real cost to stuff too. You know, I just want to emphasize that. Like, people make bad decisions mm. a lot. People take things that are bad for them. I mean, you look at the supplements industry. I mean, the vast majority of supplements do not yeah. work. And yet people just take them all the time. So, mm. you know, I think it's sort of like, navigating the costs and benefits. And personally, I feel like they should be a little bit more on the permissive side. But I also do think there's a real cost to this. Mm. Yeah, I guess, uh, personally, I think I value patient autonomy uh, more than more than most people do. But I think m many people haven't given that much thought to what a serious infringement of autonomy it is that you just can't offer a medical treatment unless it's been approved by by some bureaucrats who think they know what's what's best for people. It really is quite an extreme level of, of review and, and control over over our lives and what, what kinds of choices that we can make. We don't have it for many other products. Admittedly, many other products aren't as dangerous as, as, as medical ones. Uh, so I guess yeah, it's understandable that there are different standards. I, I totally agree with you that we need an, a systematic way of collecting data on both like the, the positive health effects and, and negative side effects of, of all of these treatments. That would potentially sweeten the deal, I guess, for, for other people uh, looking onto this, who then would see that there are broader social benefits to having a somewhat more permissive system. 
that that kind of systematic collection has led to some interesting and amusing side effect uh, lists that you get on drugs. I, I saw one recently where, well, but in order to prevent side effects from being swept under the carpet, there are rules requiring that you report kind of all of the side effects that uh, people in these trials have reported. And I saw one recently where it was listed that someone who had received the COVID vaccine uh, during a trial had been struck by lightning, and they listed that as a possible me? side effect. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I mean, obviously, yeah, obviously no one's taking that seriously. It's just a slight, but because they have to cover everything, it means that like any adverse events that happen to people that could, well, I mean, obviously struck by lightning, it actually couldn't <laughs> be caused by, I mean, I suppose that really would be quite something if the COVID vaccine can attract, can attract lightning. Well, the way they report these side effects is also just so unhelpful right now. It's just ridiculously unhelpful. A list of all the things that theoretically could happen to you because like some person reported it. I mean, I feel like there really has to be an adjust. They would really have to also track like the detailed demographics of anyone who report problems and do an adjustment saying like, is this really more than we'd expect by random chance? And, you know, if it's actually occurring less than you expect by random chance, like why are you reporting it as a side effect? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess they've gone all out in trying to prevent pharmaceutical companies from finding excuses to exclude real side effects that people are having, uh, which I guess they do have an incentive to do. But then it has produced these incredibly long side effect documents that nobody reads that really are kind of incomprehensible and not that helpful. So they've probably gone too far in that direction. Well, now you just expect every every medicine you take to tell you yeah. that like it could cause like instant death. And, Lightning. And so, and so it's like it's like doesn't even serve a purpose anymore. You're like, of course it says it's going to kill you because that's every medicine has some ridiculous list of side effects on it, right? Yeah, yeah. I want to um, some, something good that the FDA did some some decades ago is that there was this horrible phase where there have been all of these stricter requirements uh, on 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 drugs before they could be certified that they had to be proven to be safe before they could be uh, released. But that meant that sometimes people would be literally dying of a disease where we had an experimental drug that, that might save their life. But they weren't, even though they were actually dying of this disease and didn't have very long to live, they weren't allowed to take the medicine that, that might save them because they were worried about side effects. But of course, if you only have a few months to live anyway, it seems like you're willing to accept potentially a very high side effect risk in order to potentially cure your disease. I think, I think HIV AIDS was, was one of these where people were petitioning saying, you know, I, I'm literally about to die unless I get to to experiment with this medicine. And, and there was a big effort to give people medical, like much greater medical autonomy and the freedom to take riskier drugs when they are otherwise going to die uh, soon and, and, and die before the medicine would be approved through the usual channels. And that seems like obviously a, a very, really a no-brainer decision. And I guess I would just like to see that expanded to a wider range of people to give them the, the ability to, to experiment with treatments where, where they think the reward is greater than the risk for them personally. Yeah, that's that's really great that they did that. Obviously, really important. I wish there was just, in general, more public funding of trials on supplements and medicines that seemed like they could be societally beneficial. We're like, oh, this seems promising. If this actually was beneficial, like we should just roll this out across like the country or the world. And instead, what you end up in this weird situation where like the only people who have an incentive to run a trial is like the drug company itself, who has like the worst incentives in terms of yeah. doing the research. So I, you know, I wonder if that also. Like, you know, not just like the FDA blocking trials, but maybe the FDA could be mm. more involved in actually like making sure the right research take us done. Like just as an example, pitting all the different antidepressants against each other and like head to head, very large head to head trials. I feel like that would just be incredibly valuable. Yeah, I, I actually don't know I, whether like to, to what extent this happens. Uh, this is an area where I'm a bit more of a dilettante than an expert. So, I mean, I know that the US federal government does spend a lot on, on medical research. It's one of their biggest areas of, of research, but I'm not sure how much of that uh, runs through the FDA to kind of allay their concerns one way or another. Yeah, well, I think there's some kinds of trials that are just not, there's just not a great incentive for individual 
companies to do them. Like, for mm, example, if you have a trial see, that yeah. hits 10 SSRIs against each other, like, you know, mm. most of them are not going to come out on top, right? Do the drug companies want to be involved in that kind of research? But also, yeah. it's not that theoretically interesting. So it's not that great for academics either. Because they, you know, usually academics want to do something that's more has like interesting theory behind it rather than just like, which yeah. of these beats the other ones, you know? Yeah, I, I personally know someone who's working on a trial very much in this vein. They're trying to study whether extremely, many people have heard of seasonal affective disorder, which is people kind of becoming depressed or lethargic uh, during winter when they're, they're not exposed to, 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 to the sun very much. This person's studying whether putting just a ton of incredibly bright light bulbs in, in people's houses to try to make, to, to get the light levels uh, closer to what people would experience in summer outside, whether that is able to reduce the incidence of seasonal affective disorder which bizarrely is something that hasn't really been, been studied in, in any serious way. I think there have been some trials of, you know, small desk lamps, but the, I mean, they don't show very large effects, but they wouldn't be expected to because the amount of light that these lamps produce is just nowhere near uh, the amount of, of light that you would get from, from the sun during summer. So you really do need to stick up a lot of uh, quite bright LED light bulbs uh, inside a room to get it anywhere near uh, the, the level of light that the sun produces. But I guess th this one just hasn't been tested because, I mean... Who's going to profit from this? I, I guess the light bulb industry, perhaps. <laughs> they're, not, they're not too integrated with, with the medical system. And also, it's not very theoretically interesting for academics because it's almost it's too easy. You just you know, give, give half of people in your trial the lots of light bulbs to stick up in their room and make sure that they're, they're now in a much brighter environment and half of them not, and then see whether, whether they're less likely to be depressed. There's, there's not. <laughs> yeah, it's almost too basic, I think, to, to attract the interest of, of medical researchers. And so it's the kind of thing that the kind of obvious experiment that can go many years without being done. Yeah, I think I first heard that hypothesis in Eliezer Yukowski's book, Inadequate e Equilibria, which is an interesting read about like, when does society just not do things that like, it seems like it obviously should be doing and <laughs> testing that kind of thing seems like one of those. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that there's some explanation for why this hasn't already been tested extensively uh, that we're not aware of. But, but I would guess that, I mean, there are just an awful lot of research topics uh, there's, and there's only so much research funding and there's only so many researchers in, the, in these areas. So uh, some things can slip through the cracks uh, just because just, just for sheer chance. But, but this, this is one that is quite surprising on its face that it hasn't been experimented with more, given that we may well just have already a very uh, easy and cheap cure for this condition that many people report experiencing. Well, I think, I think a lot of times folks that are really into like thinking rationally, when they look at the world, they're like, oh, wow, the world seems really crazy in a whole bunch of ways. Like, and their first reaction is to be just like, oh, there's low hanging fruit everywhere. I'll just like go in and fix this field or something like this. And then often I think what they learn as they get closer is that there are reasons the way things are that, the way they are. They're not as like good reasons in the mm -hmm. sense that like you'd want that like, oh, that makes sense. We shouldn't study, you know, why, uh, whether bright light bulbs help cure seasonal affective disorder. So it's like oftentimes the reasons are not good reasons, but they're hard to change reasons. <laughs> so, yeah. so you realize like the world's crazy in all these ways, but also it's like very hard to make it not crazy. It's like very stuck. So I think that's an interesting lesson often occurs. Yeah, the, the equilibrium is an equilibrium for a reason. There's a reason that someone else hasn't already solved this problem. It's, it's a really just interesting question fun, like at a fundamental level, how mad is the world? <laughs> and I guess I, I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle where I'm like, yeah, it's decently mad. There's a lot of very strange decisions or very like suboptimal decisions that bureaucracies make and very strange things that people like don't do that seem like that'd be extremely beneficial. But, but I do, but I do think that there are many cases where if you look into something in more detail, you find out that there are surprisingly good reasons that things are, are the way they are. And as an amateur, it's possible to get tricked because something looks much crazier, prima facie than it, than it actually is. 
but but not always. Sometimes you look into it more and you're like, no, nah, this is just uh, this is just really bad outcome, and we and people should take action to try to change it. I mean, I don't think the world's mad at all. This is exactly what you'd expect from chimpanzees wearing suits and ties, <laughs> building civilization. I mean, uh, yeah. It's possible to be despondent about, you know, all of these details of ethical review being suboptimal, but I suppose we are doing pretty well for, for a bunch of chimps. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about the fact that like creatures build civilization just the moment that they're smart enough to, you know, it's like, mm. we're like just barely intelligent enough to have a civilization. So like, just go for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you should expect some problems along the way. Um, but personally, I feel like the world is extremely mad, but it doesn't mean it's easy to change. Unfortunately, I want to, I yeah. want to do a podcast episode at one point on just like how mad is the world and how fake is the world? I think those are just fascinating topics. So. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, talking about a mad world, I think an interesting topic is that of betting markets and prediction markets where, where people try to bet on what world events are going to happen. And there are a lot of a lot of uh, smart people who say that it's really crazy that we don't use these more to like understand what's going to happen in the world and uh, make predictions about things. So I'm curious to hear your your thoughts on this. I know you've you've investigated prediction markets. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I have an amateur interest in prediction markets. I guess yeah. First, we should lay out what the what what they are for listeners who aren't familiar with them. Please. I suppose. In fact, in fact, they may be like a bunch simpler than than people make out. So. You, people are familiar with the fact that people gamble on which, which, who's going to win different sports matches. And often, you know, millions or tens of millions of dollars are bet on you know, soccer matches and, and other kinds of sports. And basically, the, the, the bookies, the people who are, who are matching these, these, these bets on one team versus the other, they end up with odds that imply particular probabilities about, you know, the, the favored team is 70% likely to win the match and the disfavored team is about 30% likely to win the match. And it turns out that, perhaps unsurprisingly, these, these sports markets are reasonably efficient, that if a team in, in the betting odds is 70% likely to win, then that team wins about 70% of the time. They're, they're, they're not quite perfect. They're, there are some distortions, but they perform reasonably well. And you'd expect that because if, it, if people noticed that when a team on, in, in, in soccer matches was 70%, was 70% likely to win in these, with, with the bookies, that they were in fact 80% likely to win, and someone could come in and just make lots of bets and basically make a whole lot of money. They could make a living out of just uh, betting on, on teams that were, that were underrated. Now, it turns out that you can, you can do this not just with sports events, but with any events. You could, you could have betting markets on you know, who's going to win elections, and, and, and we do have those. Typically not in the, in the United States because it's, it's illegal, but overseas, you know, the U.S. presidential election is bet on to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. You can have predictions about you know, what will be the price of oil. Obviously, you have that in financial markets. You could bet on, you know, will this country go to war with, with that other? Uh, you know, what will policy in this area be? What will levels of COVID be? And I guess it seems like potentially this could be extremely useful because if, if, these, if these betting markets, if these prediction markets are actually well calibrated such that, you know, if the market says that 70% of the time something is going to happen, it really does happen 70% of the time. And say, uh, we set up one of these markets on, you know, how many people are going to die of COVID by, by this date. That would be really useful information to have ahead of time. It could, could help to guide policy, help to guide people's decisions, all, all sorts of things. So yeah, people have been thinking about this for, I guess, a, a couple of decades. And there have been a bunch of experiments run with these kind of real world event uh, prediction markets. By and large, they perform uh, reasonably well. But I suppose, yeah, recently I've been thinking about this because I, I've noticed, and I think some other people have noticed that these kind of prediction markets, when it comes to politics, seem to be performing surprisingly Badly, and in fact, there's there's a couple of times I think three or four times that I've put substantial amounts of money into political betting markets because I just thought they were they were way off the mark and I could make some easy money here and and every every time I have <laughs> I have made money out of them which could just be chance but 
it's a difficult question of if you look at the odds on say you know the the, the 2020 presidential election and they just and they look wrong how wrong do they have to be and how confident do you have to be to say no it's it's the market that's wrong rather than just i'm missing something and in fact the the betting market is is smarter than me i think i've been reluctant to conclude that the odds in political betting markets wrong but i think there's been such a record over multiple different cycles of the numbers just seeming completely disconnected from reality and completely disconnected from from polling that I, I, now I'm starting to think, well, th- maybe there fundamentally is something wrong here and there are distortions in here and we shouldn't take these numbers at face value. I, have you been, I think you've, you've been tracking this one as well, right? Yeah, so I think it's interesting to compare them to regular financial markets, like with the stock market, because you know, there's this whole idea of the efficient market hypothesis when it comes to the stock market. And there are many different flavors of the efficient market hypothesis. But you know, one simple version of it is it's very, very hard to outperform the stock market in the long term, right? So if you know, the stock market says a share of GE should be worth $50. It's very hard to like systematically do a better job of pricing the shares of GE such that you make a lot of money in the long term. And, you know, I think people want to like carry that analogy over to prediction markets and say, well, it's the same sort of thing. Like people are just betting on, you know, the probability of events. Like, you know, imagine that you are a random market participant. Why should you think that you would be better than average? You're just a random person. There are a lot of other random people betting. And we also know that averaging different forecasts tend to beat the individuals, right? So it's like, you know, imagine you have 10 forecasters, you, you have two choices, you can either pick one of them at random and trust that person, or you can just take the average of all of them, like, clearly, you'd rather take the average than to pick one at random, right? And so if you yeah. kind of take this outside view on yourself, you view yourself as just a random forecaster, why would you think you would beat the average, right? So, you know, I think all these arguments make it seem like, oh, yeah, prediction markets probably going to be reliable. My suspicion is that they're significantly less reliable than like stock markets, for example. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think stock markets also sometimes go crazy. You know, we have bubbles and things like that. So I think even stock markets sometimes are nuts. But that being said, I think prediction markets for things like politics might be less reliable than that. And my suspicion is what's going on is that the, often these are really like charged political topics. And, you know, if there's any topic that makes people go, you know, not think rationally, it's <laughs> politics. You know, so one thing that I experienced when Trump won the original presidential election was that many, many people were in total shock. Like they thought they thought it was like essentially impossible for him to win. And I think Mm. that's just because we have such strong like political bubbles that like I think a lot of people I I knew did like didn't even know of someone that voted for Trump. You know, like they couldn't even think of a single person that they knew about Trump. And, and so you now you carry that over to prediction markets. And it's like, well, you have Trump fans who are going to probably overprice Trump and you have. Trump haters, you're probably going to underprice Trump. And like the, the, pr- the price put on him uh, in the prediction markets might actually depend significantly on the ratios of how many people hate him versus love him in those markets. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that, that could potentially explain it. I guess the, the mystery then is why wouldn't people who are motivated to make money come in with very large sums, notice that there's some systematic bias in, in the odds that are being offered here, and then just throw tens of millions of dollars to, to fix that error and in the process make a bunch of money? That's a great question. I mean, I also thought the odds were crazy and I made a legal mm. bet <laughs> against Trump winning the election. <laughs> and what, I th- what I thought yeah. were really good odds. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, so, so maybe it's worth going through a couple of different case studies of times that, that at least I've thought that the odds are strange and I think some other people have commented. Maybe the, maybe the first time I started thinking, wow, this is really strange, odd is going all the way back to 2012. When on Predict It, Romney was, I, I think, forecast. He had a 
this was back in a time when far fewer people were, were betting on these issues and the amounts of money involved were a lot smaller. But he was there was like one trader who was just buying up Romney and getting him up to a probability of like 30 or 40% of winning the election, despite the fact that I think almost all other th- sources thought that he was substantially less likely than that to win the election. And I actually managed to make quite a bit of money arbitraging this, the, the difference in probabilities between predict it, where this person was active, spending millions of dollars trying to prop up Romney's probability. Or at least maybe that's my framing of what they were doing. <laughs> maybe they were sincerely betting. And then basically selling, because I was like selling Romney on predict it and then buying, buying Romney mm-hmm. on, a, on a different uh, market where, where the odds were different. And I think I mean, my, my conclusion here was that there was someone who was a supporter of Mitt Romney uh, for president and thought that it would be good, a good way to, to support his campaign uh, was to uh, just spend millions of dollars propping up the odds uh, that Romney would win on this predicted betting market because they thought that this would improve media coverage of Romney, say. And because someone was, was spending this money for kind of reasons that were not related to the fundamental probabilities, they were trying to influence events through this. It was possible potentially to, to make money uh, betting against them. And me and some other people did. But the reason that that wasn't able to fix the problem completely is that it was extremely difficult to get money into this market. It was a, it was a huge pain and it was a bit obscure and a bunch of work. So just most people aren't going to be interested uh, in, in, in doing that. So they were able to, like, I think, change the odds from probably like 20% to 40%, just as I think one really wealthy person uh, doing that. Now, that's, I think, the first time that I became suspicious. But there's been other times as well where you know, during the Brexit vote, the polling was actually extremely close. It was about only a four point race between Leave and Remain. There was every reason to think that Leave could win, just taking the polling at face value, because the polls are often wrong by, by far more than 4%. It wouldn't, wouldn't be unusual at all. And yet, for some reason, the betting markets thought that it was extremely unlikely. I guess on the, on the day, they were 10%, 20% likely. So they seemed to kind of perform badly there. They actually performed well on Trump in 2016. I guess 538 thought that he was a 30% chance and so did, so did betting markets. So that looks like a good case. The Australian election, the last federal election there, they suggested it was extremely unlikely that the Conservative Party would be returned. I think it may have gotten as low as a 1 in 10 chance. But again, the polling fundamentally just looked extremely close. And I, I said on the day, I was like, I don't understand why people think that it's so unlikely they would win because it, it only requires a small polling error. And indeed, they were very narrowly returned. I guess during the Democratic primary this year, betting markets gave Joe Biden a pretty low probability of winning, despite the fact that he had been leading in polling basically the entire time. So yeah, there's, there's, oh yeah I guess you, you, it's very hard to know. It's possible that they've just had like a bad run. They've just gotten unlucky a few times. Oh, it's possible that I'm delusional <laughs> and that you know, I have my opinions about what things are likely. But in fact, the, the market in general is, is smarter than me. But it is also possible that there's, there's something going on here where Perhaps that there aren't enough people who are motivated to just be completely rational and make money on these markets. There aren't enough, I guess, sharks <laughs> to, to come into these markets who are, are just professionals trying to trying to make money, like 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 traders or like like bankers do on financial markets. And so, the, the prices or the, or the odds here are driven by partisans who are willing to bet between them very large amounts of money on 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 candidates that they favor, candidates who they personally like and therefore think are going to win, and. Basically, they they end up uh, that 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 tail ends up wagging the dog and uh, completely influencing the the probabilities, and, and they're just no longer uh, really reliable things to look at. Well, you know, I think one thing that's worth uh, noting is the trickiness of evaluating a probabilistic prediction, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you and I would both agree that the right way to think about predictions is with probabilities, right? To say not oh, that's going to happen, yeah. it's not going to happen, but to say oh, I'm ninety percent confident, I'm sixty percent confident, whatever. Now, when you're going to evaluate a prediction like that, like let's say the prediction market says you know, 70% chance this thing's not going to happen. And then the thing happens, 
there's a sense in which that's wrong, but it's a harder sense to evaluate. And you have to now go to calibration scoring rules. I actually wrote a white paper about how to use different calibration scoring rules and the trade-offs of using them. But basically, there's a bunch of different calibration scoring rules you could, you could use. There's like the Breyer score. There's like the log scoring rule. And basically, there are ways of saying, okay, if someone estimated 70% chance of something and then it didn't happen, like, how bad is that? <laughs> and you kind of get a number of points, you have kind of a penalty. It's, it's much subtler, and it's a much harder evaluate thing than just like, how often have they been right? And so maybe that, that actually makes it like tough to say how bad they are, unless someone goes back meticulously and actually tries to <laughs> do the calculation, right? Yeah, well, I mean, in as much as they're only wrong for these very prominent and interesting and well-covered political events, there just aren't enough of them to actually say because you need such a large sample because you want to say, well, when they said it was 70% likely, was it 70% likely? And when they said it was 50% likely, was it 50% likely? In order to judge how good someone is at forecasting, you just really need a remarkably large sample and it's not something that we're going to get. I will say, so I guess I was, I was suspicious of prediction markets or betting markets and all the betting odds during this 2020 cycle. But I, I always realized that there was a possibility that, that I was wrong and maybe because uh, I guess prediction markets were saying that Trump had a 35% chance of winning or a 40% chance of winning at the same time that uh, polling experts were giving him more like a 10 to 20% chance of winning. But it could have been that the betting markets were inf- had a bunch more information incorporated into them. And in fact, they were offering the, 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 the better prediction. I think the thing that really made me re- conclude that there was something going wrong, wrong was that up to a few weeks ago, some of these prediction markets were offering, were willing to pay 10%. You could, you could stake 90 cents and get a dollar if Biden won like two weeks ago. And this is in early December when I think it was just overwhelmingly clear that Biden had like barring a coup or some extremely peculiar event, Biden was overwhelmingly likely to, to win. And looking at this, I was like, wow, I can make 5 to 10% return within a few weeks by betting on Biden, even though he's, he already won this election weeks ago. I, I threw you know, quite, a, quite a substantial amount of money at this. And, and recently, those, those, those bets were paid out in, in Biden's favor. Maybe that's, that's one of the clearest cases I've seen. Where I was like, I, I just don't see how these odds can be justified. Like, it, it can't be the case that Trump had a 20% chance of winning the election in, in early December. That, that's the canary in the coal mine that something has gone wrong here. Yeah, well, totally. I also mentioned that some markets like predict it, they can be somewhat distorted by like fees and transaction costs. So I've seen plenty of times yeah. when the, actually the sum of the probabilities is over 100%. Like I've seen it get up to, I think, like 110%, which is pretty weird. But then you can kind of do these calculations mm. and say, well, because the fees and transaction costs are actually making these trades, it can actually be not worth it for people to like, you know, to kind of make the probabilities equal 100%. So it's kind of a funny effect as well. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but sorry, earlier I was, I was saying predicted. I actually meant a market called Intrade back in 2012. That's a market that doesn't exist, but predicted is this interesting academic project that, that's managed to get approval to run in the United States and run prediction markets on these kind of uh, topics as a, it's an academic project to study how accurate these, these markets are. And because it's a research project, they've gotten, uh, they've gotten around gambling laws that would otherwise prohibit this kind of thing for the US citizens. But in order to get approval to operate as a research project, they've got a limit that you, each person can only bet $850, or they can only stake $850 at most on each of these markets. And that means that once you're getting to the level where someone is a 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 not non-favorite, a long shot, one person who comes in and stakes $850 on the long shot candidate has to be offset by 20 people who come in and stake $850 on the other side. And I think there just aren't maybe enough people tracking this who are, who are interested to open an account, deposit $850 
and in order to make what is effectively a 5% return on that. So it's, 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 it's actually is no surprise to me that predict its odds, especially as you approach the zero and 100% bounds, uh, become seriously distorted and, and, and are quite wrong. But the, but the mystery is a bit deeper than that, because say in the UK, it's very easy to gamble on these topics and you don't even pay tax on, on, on the winnings. It's, it's, very, it's actually very, yeah, it's very straightforward. <laughs> I could guide people through it in, in about 10 minutes to set up an account and start gambling. And I, I found that as, as, as uh, recently as like a week or two ago, I could earn a 6% return betting on Biden to win the election. This is in like early to mid-December. And I could have bet up to 1.7 million pounds <laughs> earning a 6% return on, on Biden winning. So th- these are not small markets. And I mean, I think there are caps for individuals, but they're very large. They're hundreds of thousands of pounds. So, so they're, they're, they're the mystery, I think, is substantially greater. And I think now we have to have some story about maybe there's just only so many people who pay attention to these betting markets. It's the, the, the amount of money that you can make isn't big enough to interest Goldman Sachs or other, other big investors. They'd rather be playing in futures markets and the stock market and so on, where they, they have more expertise and can make more money. And maybe it just is the case that of all of those people who are interested in, in tracking these numbers, uh, a, a large fraction of political partisans. A significant fraction of them are really diehard Trump supporters, say, and they are just willing to stake enough money to keep the odds at, you know, with, with a 6% return, even when it basically seems like a foregone conclusion to, to everyone else. And there aren't enough other people willing to come in to, to change it. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about what makes a market behave rationally, you need to have enough money on the line that's like just focused on going with the, the best estimate probabilities. And you probably need it actually to have a lot of such players. Like, cause even if you just had one, that might not be enough. Like maybe they're just making, you know, individual reasoning errors or something like this. So you need like mm. a whole bunch of players that are totally dispassionate, all in competition with each other. And, and you can kind of have this funny thing where if something's too small or too weird, like, yeah, the huge players are just not incentivized. It's, it's like, uh, if we can only invest 1% of our assets, is it even worth it, right? Yeah. And so you kind of get this weird kind of territory. But, you know, I think crypto markets are like this too, right? There, I have seen mm. just absolutely crazy prices in uh, cryptocurrency markets that just make, they make no mm. sense. And you think, why doesn't, you know, some huge hedge fund come and gobble it up? And it's like, well, maybe it's just not worth their time. Maybe the regulatory issues are too complicated, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we've, we've really focused here on where they go wrong. But by and large, I'm a pretty big supporter of these markets. I, I wish that there were more of them and more people participated and maybe even that they received government subsidies, at least in some areas, say, in forecasting COVID cases and COVID deaths and, you know, when will we invent a vaccine and things like that. Because despite their weaknesses, they're usually as good or better than any other source of forecasting that we can get. And the information they produce is really a very valuable public good sometimes uh, because everyone can see the, the prices, everyone can see the probabilities that they imply and then can, can use that to help guide their, guide their decisions. Uh, so despite all of my criticisms here, whenever I'm interested in forecasting some topic where I know that people are engaging in, in, the, in these betting markets on that topic, that's almost always the first source that I go to to try to get just some sense of what's the likelihood of, 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 of different outcomes. Of course, you also want to look at other sources as well, like you know, people who have domain expertise and, and what they're writing and saying. But the, but the betting markets are generally a pretty reliable source uh, to, to give you just an overall picture. Yeah, I think they're really great when you really don't have a sense of the likelihood of something and you just want a first number, right? And they're probably better than your like, totally uninformed first number. And then you can kind of start thinking about more how reliable they are. And also, like, as they get more and more popular, and eventually you have large funds going into them that are truly dispassionate and just how to calculate the odds, we should expect them uh, to improve over time. What I've been doing when I want to forecast the likelihood of something important, whether it's, you know, the chance someone wins an election or 
chance of a vaccine in certain times or whatever. I try to find every forecast of it that I can find by a credible player, mm. whether, you know, some forecasts by prediction markets, other forecasts maybe by uh, large institutions, other by maybe expert forecasters or like Phil Tetlock super forecasting team. And then basically what I do is what I call a dragonfly eye prediction, which is, it's, it comes from mm-hmm. actually Tetlock's idea of like dragonfly eyes, like the way you should look at making predictions. So I, I took that term from him. But basically what I do is for each of these different uh, forecasts, I basically say, how much do I trust this? So, you know, how much do I trust the prediction market versus the polling versus the model from, you know, 538 versus this one forecaster? And then I give them each a weight and I create this like weighted average. Basically, I use that as my kind of final estimate. And it's the best way I know of to get reasonably quickly get a forecast of, of some future world event. Yeah, that, that seems ex- uh, extremely reasonable. I think actually the, the source that I've trusted recently even more than other prediction markets is the Good Judgment Project. They've got they've put together teams of super forecasters. So that is people who have a demonstrated, proven uh, track record of um, being very good at predicting things that are, that are going to happen in these, in these tournaments that they've run where they get you know, thousands of people to put in uh, lots of predictions and all kinds of real world events and then evaluate their performance. So they've got these teams of a substantial number of super forecasters, as they call them. Uh, and then they get them to predict. Well, recently they've been getting them to predict all kinds of things about COVID-19. Uh, and publishing the results so you can track every day their predictions about you know how will the economy be doing in the first quarter of 2021 and how many people will have been vaccinated by by this date uh, you know will the olympics go ahead uh, that kind of thing and it's interesting i mean even though i i think these people aren't really being compensated uh, or at least uh, certainly i don't think they're being compensated in the same way that you are on a, on a betting market they're, they're not actually gambling uh, with your money uh, they're, they're doing it i think for prestige and perhaps out of intellectual interest but I think they actually have a stronger track record of that, 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 that group than do prediction markets of, of making accurate, accurate forecasts. And so that, that's, that's what I've personally been going to every couple of days to see, well, what's, what's the latest on vaccination and what's the latest on, on, on case data? Yeah, if I, if I had to just use one source, that's probably what I would use as well, because they literally just have a track record. I mean, that's how they select them. Basically, they're the ones that have mm. predicted well enough for long enough. That being said, you know, it doesn't mean that they can predict something totally out of their wheelhouse. Like if they try to predict something that that's sort of different than, than the kinds of forecasts they've made in the past, that, that could be tricky. I'll just say for anyone interested in improving uh, your predictions, we actually on clearthing.org, you can use our calibration tool, which we made in collaboration with Open Philanthropy Project. And you can literally train on thousands of predictions. We have, we have actually like a bunch of different types of predictions you can make too. And what's cool is we kind of score you immediately as you make them. And so you get this like real-time feedback and you can kind of hone your your friction abilities over time. Yeah, I've actually I've uh, done two interviews on the eighty thousand hours podcast with uh, Philip Tetlock, who's kind of the the grandfather of forecasting research. He started this this whole area of social science, or at least made a big leap forward uh, with it in the eighties when he got tons of experts, uh, usually in the economy and foreign affairs, to start making thousands of predictions on all kinds of international events that that might happen, and economic events and political events. And then tried to figure out what kinds of people make make accurate forecasts. And ultimately, he's I guess been working on this project for for forty years and has a whole lot of findings about what kind of thinking patterns lead you to to make accurate forecasts and which ones tend to tend to lead you astray. And and he's helped to create this good judgment project where they are identifying people who are extremely who have, just have very good judgment overall and very uh, fair minded, and then try to try to get get the wisdom out of them for, for for the general public. Rob, thanks so much for coming on. This was really fun. Yeah, this has been been very entertaining. I'm glad we got to go for so many hours. And I guess we're, we're coming up to Christmas and, and, and New Year's. Uh, so I've been reflecting on 2020. And uh, I guess I really hope that 2021 is a, is a better year. And maybe we can get you back on the 80,000 Hours podcast to be the first guest to, to, to come on for the third time. 
I'd love to do that. Thanks so much. Cool. Have a good one. I hope you enjoyed uh, that conversation. A reminder that if you did, you should check out Spencer's show, The Clearer Thinking Podcast. Some favorite episodes of mine are episode two, Aesthetics and Polyamory with Sam Rosen, episode number eight, Life Experiments and Philosophical Thinking with Arden Kaler, and episode number 10, Education and Charity with Yuri Bram. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.